Welcome back, Six Pack Lapidat, Paul Maranzan, as per usual. And um, so it's uh, we're getting into December. Is it December now? Yeah, it's December. We're okay. Gonna, we're officially into the season of Christmas. Is or, it December? Or Hanukkah, or Rosh Hashanah, or look at you being what other politically? What the fuck is Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah? I don't know. I'm just running words. I'm basically still drunk. Let's Do you are those are those actually holidays? Yeah, Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah. What's Rosh Hashanah? Well, it's it's a good question, actually. I think it's... Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to say it now, because now I'm concerned. Google, Google. I'm like, if, Google. I, if I... You can't throw it out. If I screw this up... Oh, you, you're going to offend the I'm going to just... What's, what's, um, what's the other one you said? Quantica. Or Quantica? Did <laughs> I just join two? Wow. We are... We're, we're, we're only 50 seconds in. We can restart this. We can pull this back. <laughs> what's, what is the other one you said? I am ignorant as shit right now, aren't I? Uncultured. What was Kwanzaa? You, Kwanzaa. What's Kwanzaa? It's another like Christmas holiday. I can't remember which who it's for either. Dude, you are so ignorant. I can't even believe you right now. I can't even believe you right now. I need to know what these are. It is a for. I'm trying to find it, but you know how hard it is to spell spell Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. What? <laughs> Try or Kwanzaa. I'm just gonna Google. Holidays. Yeah, Winter. Holidays. Why, why are we even talking? How do we get down this path? Because, uh, I, listen. It's we for, talk, sorry. For me, for me, I none of this shit starts until December. I don't want to hear no Christmas holidays or any of that bullshit right off the bat after Halloween's done. For some people, they start pulling that shit up real quick. Winter holidays. This is... You're just looking, yeah, you're looking for a legitimate holiday, which that's a good deal for Cuba. <laughs> what are all the different holidays? God damn it. You got me intrigued because um, here's the thing. When you're melting pot now, so at work, at your work, can you say happy or Merry Christmas or do you have to say happy holidays? I don't know. I say Merry Christmas because yes, you, because I have you, no... you white privileged, middle-class, straight, sometimes, male. Wow. Wow. I like to throw the Christmas right out there. I bet you do. As far as I'm concerned, it's I Christmas season, and that's... Bet you do, buddy. It's a nice world. But, I, but are people still... Because it was blowback. For a little while, it was like, it's, it's ignorant to say Merry Christmas. Because we're a melting pot. And we come from all different backgrounds. It's not just Christmas. So you say happy holidays. And it was actually like, I think some places you get in trouble. Like some workplaces, probably government, you'd actually get in trouble if you said Merry Christmas. Oh, so yeah. you have to say happy holidays. I know like, I'm not obviously going to divulge where I work or anything like that, but I know like for myself. Strip all the, club, by the way. Male strip club. But go on. Yeah. Um, low, low pay male Defin escort. Go definitely on. B squad. B squad, low pay male escort. Whatever you want, fifty dollars. That's fine. Come on, I can make fifty dollars. <laughs> I forgot your pimp's cut. I Anyways, yeah. Where are we going with this? Yeah, at your work. Oh yeah, can I know. I know all the official stuff is supposed to be Happy Holidays, but whatever. No one's gonna say shit if you say Merry no. Christmas. I haven't got an HR complaint yet. We'll say that. You know what I said the other day, and I wasn't sure if I was allowed to. I said, "Yeah, man, I feel like I'm, I'm enjoying my Indian summer." I don't know if you can say that. Because it's Indian summer. Yeah. Meaning, 
And the actual, so I Googled after I went to my desk, I was like, holy fuck, I think I might have got myself fired. <laughs> you know who I said this to? You know who I said this to? The HR lady. Uh, HR is the worst department in terms of being unpolitically correct, though. You know what? I kind of noticed some, some, some Any that. single work party you've got, like if you go to a Christmas per work party, well, they're safe. I am Stop. willing to bet that the one person that's drunk off their ass and grabbing people is probably working Grab, in HR. Grabbing people by the pussy? Wow. <laughs> Jesus wept. Like Donald Trump. But, um, no, but I, I swear to God I said that. Went back to my desk and was like, holy shit, I just said Indian summer. But is that wrong? I don't, so I Googled it. Hopefully it didn't start. You didn't start saying that. They probably started the paperwork on you already, by the way. They, they, I, I was hoping they didn't start the saying when they like slaughtered like a fucking 100,000 Indians. And they're not Indians, they're natives. And it's racist all around. Yeah. But it wasn't. Um, it was just, it, mean, it literally means just summer that lasts really long. And I was like, well, what did it come from? Was there like a story to it? None. So there isn't anything... But I find, it hard, idiot. I find it hard to believe hey, let there's me no also, story. Let me also hit you. You sound like a fucking HR person right now. Look, you're like building a case. Brian, I don't know. That's when you're in trouble. Was like, ah, I don't know. No, but okay, first off, you can't say Indian. You gotta say native. It's a native summer. Unless you really mean people in India and it's an Indian summer. Hey, they, they pulled me into that office. That's what I'm saying. Yep. No, Bro. if they pull you in the office, all you say is I have a drinking problem. <laughs> at, worst, and, at worst, you get sent to rehab. And I'm gay. And they're like, uh, not sure what that means, how this affects you, except for you're trying to identify as a minority, not visible, so yep. that somehow we have to, you're going to try to work an angle. You know if you're getting in shit and the guy goes, I have a drinking problem and I might be gay. You know, like, this motherfucker lawyered up on the weekend. Yep. This, this motherfucker has he, he knew what was coming. <laughs> yeah. Because all of a sudden, he had insider information and he came prepared. He is, all of a sudden, he's two-spirited. Okay. Some days feels like a woman. Some days feels like a man. Some days, he's ready. He's ready for this conversation. What would they say? If you said something even semi-like, as a white guy, you're not allowed to say. And they pulled you and you're like, oh, well, let me, I should actually follow up. Um, I don't just identify as well. I don't identify at all as white. Checkmate, bitch. <laughs> just, I'm not, that's what it is. Checkmate, motherfucker. Keep my keep cash coming. Yeah. I'm taking the rest of the day off because you just stressed me out. I'm taking, you know, you know what? I'm going to take the rest of the week off. We'll call it even because I'm stressed this out. This just reminds you. me of a conversation that Brad and I had. So, backstory at his workplace, they were doing this whole like workplace diversity thing. He was identified as an athlete. Now, first of all, how is, my first question is, how is an athlete a diverse like, demographic now? It is, though? Apparently for his workplace, anyways. But and, He's been in, like, three powerlifting competitions, by the way. <laughs> Which, he's a jock no, to these, to I, these pink pushing They look at him like a god. Like, he's half full. He may... He, exactly. He's had three powerlifting competitions... Hey, he's tough. I mean, he's a yeah. strong cat. If he's a normal gym guard, he squats in the 400s. Yeah. He's not a small guy. No, I mean, when he walks out of the office, he's probably one of the strongest dudes there. Yeah. Probably the strongest. But to be like, talk about him like he's a fucking Major League Baseball player. Yeah. Or he's like, 
you know, this is just a hobby for him. He's not. Me personally, I think it was a joke because they made him wear a singlet in the <laughs> office for the video. <laughs> sure. I think the HR person was just like, well, you know what? an athlete, did they use air quotes? <laughs> Cause, cause what? I mean, like, hey, whatever it was. If it was me, I'd be like, what's with the fucking air quotes, bro? What do you, what was this funny? What's what you do? Is my sport, is my sport a joke to you? If someone says, yeah, Ryan, he's a man, and does air quotes, I'd be like, what the fuck is with the air quotes, Playboy? What are you, what are you trying well, to I mean, lead to? We're talking about you as a man, then, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. You obviously followed me in the washroom, but that's not the point here. It's... That's not, but it is, there is like a million. So they, when they did this film, was it all about, um, like accepting people in the workplace? Well, what was... I believe so. Oh, I don't really know what the whole point was. But anyways, we went back to like, they went through a whole series of questions. And I don't even know how we got on this topic now or where I'm going with this. But one of the questions was like, was, are you, or do you identify as lonely or anything? Something like that. What? Brad's like, I sat on my desk for fucking the whole goddamn day just thinking, like, am I lonely? Like, how do you define lonely? Do like, you, and is that like a... Am I lonely now? No, I'm at work. Wow, man. That's some weird shit, because I swear to God, I, I applied for a job one time, and it, it was a government job. It asked me if I was, and I quote, two-spirited. <laughs> Meaning, was there two spirits in me, I'm assuming? Yeah. Now, I don't know if it has to be male, female, or if it could be both male. No, you don't identify. You can't gender identify your spirit. Well, why the fuck are you asking that? What does that mean? If I, I did, did that, should I have said yes, and I would have got... But I mean, if I say yes... Are you sure this is a government job you applied for? Oh, it, it, was, it wasn't no, just some hey, like, random dude that's listen, like, hey, I got a job for you. No, no, Justin Trudeau is going to ask these. Dude, he, as soon as he got into power, he was like, half of you are a female, half of you are male, and that's the way it is. He's that dude. Yeah. And if he thinks he wants proper representation, so they're going to look for specifically individuals identified. And in, in this case, they were looking for spirited individuals. Yeah. Two-spirited. Two-spirited individuals. individuals. That's why I want to lift in the women's division of powerlifting, because I feel like if I use the women's books calculator, I'm going to fucking murder people. I've already said that. I got, I'm going to fucking murder people. I I may not take gold in 70, as a 72-kilo woman, but goddammit, I'm going to be more competitive. I'll tell you what. Let me lift in the men's division, but let me use the women's books calculator. How bad would that piss people off? Because I'm two-spirited. How would that work the other way? The woman came over to the men's side, but identified as a man. But which which Wilkes formula is she using, or are they using? Well, she wants to use the women's. Have you ever looked at where your where your Wilkes would be if you use the women's? No. Wilkes? You're a fucking star. It's pretty dope. It's pretty it's pretty dope to do. Pull it up right now. And this is the point where I do it, and I'm like, oh, my Wilkes still sucks ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, but just see. Throw in, like, find out what a 400, look, so say 400 Wilkes for a man, nice even number, and then put in, put in what a 400 Wilkes is for a man in your weight class, and then put in that same as a woman's. You know, you know what I'm saying? I have no idea what you're saying. Let me do it. Yeah, here you go. Oh, fucking guy. Make it an even number so it's, it's obvious. What's a 400 Wilkes in 74 kilo class? Um, total would be around... Five five seven and a half, I think. Five five seven point five. Let's see real quick. Let's make a nice even. Four hundred and one. Okay, well, so there we go. Five five seven and a half. So that's four hundred. So four hundred Wilkes for a men's, in a women's. This is gonna fucking piss some people off. Let's fucking go. Five thirty four. Holy 
Shit! I am a champ. Whoa! And as long as I can compete as a woman. Dog, I didn't think it was that big of a difference. Holy shit, bro. So from a 400, you know, all right. You know, you're all right. Um, stronger than all your friends. Yeah. In powerlifting, you're competitive, you know, to your fucking world champion. You got to be two-spirited, bro. I, I'll be three-spirited if I have to. <laughs> you got to be. Wow, I didn't realize that shit. Anyways, but that all that's going out the window anyways. Yeah. They've got the scrap in the books formulas. Um, I wonder, though, they must have to do... So, are they going to keep doing a men and women's I would, order? I guess so. I would think so. I'd assume. Otherwise, because there's such a weird discrepancy there, it's not even close. So then the women would be like, what the fuck happened to my numbers? It's you can't be, do it's that. It's going to be interesting to see what they do anyways. And how it works. Yeah. Because every formula you use is going to have something people don't like. You won't catch it initially. But down the road, you're like, have you noticed it's skewed this way? For Wilkes, it's skewed towards the heavyweights and the small, small fries. Yeah. The half humans. And um, for, that's a political I, term. I was going to say, is that the political <laughs> term? <laughs> you don't know. I could call a bluff and you'd be like, is little people now offensive? Excuse me, did you just say little people? It's half human, asshole. And you, if I pulled that to you at work, you wouldn't know to stand your ground or back off because you're, everyone's afraid. I'd be like, what? As, as a white straight male? Siri. Yeah, as a white straight ma white male, you'd be like, I'm backing down. Yeah, I'm Because I, I can only lose. I've got nothing in this fight. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I can only lose. Fine, half human it is for this conversation at least. I'm not, I'm not going to I'm not going to use that term because <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's right or not. That's right. But I'm not I, taking it past this conversation, but in this a, conversation is right. As a straight white male, I identify I'm a piece of shit and I lose every conversation. So that's all it is right now. All right. Wow, we now that we tangent today. Whoa! From holidays to what to call them, have we just have we lost all of our followers today? Have we offended? I was you know what? Maybe not lost, but we've offended the majority. <laughs> but if I read the comments and shit on our posts, these are these are uh, a little rough around the edges. Characters, thick skinned, anyways. I hope so. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely <laughs> tested that, <laughs> to say the least. Anyways, happy holidays. Um, or Merry Christmas. Or Happy Kwanzaa. Yeah. So let's take a look here. At, we have at this point, this poor gentleman is gonna listen to this intro and just be, yeah. Thanks, guys. How he got it. Yeah, James Strickland. Yeah. He's gonna, yeah, I was gonna send this to my parents. I was gonna send this to my friends. Uh, did I mention I'm Jewish and <laughs> whatever? I don't know if we offended Jews yet, but I'm sure soon. Um, give it time. Let's give it time. No, but um, speaking of James Strickland, for those who don't know. Um, I shot him a message. Uh, love to have him on because I see. I'm, I'm just intrigued by all of these. Like not even bench only because James Key. Uh, well, he's a bench only. Sorry, yeah. uh, Jason, Mike, and um, some of these fellas. They all do three. James yeah. Strickland does three lifts as well. Yeah, he's got but a total of three lifts. He's got a hell of a total of three lifts. But he's a bench special of the three. The benches is yeah. So all these guys chasing like 700 pound bench. And uh, there seems to be a rush towards that with some of these gentlemen, like James or Julius Maddox. And they all have phenomenal stories. So I'm riding this wave of all these guys coming on, ending up having these big, huge, you know, like over-the-top stories. I'm like, yep. let me shoot him out a message and say, James, do you want to come on? Because you're amongst, you're in the pack chasing a 700-pound bench. Seem to have a bunch of you guys doing it. James Maddox hit it in 2018, but there's far more <clears throat> going for 2019. And I said... And give me a little bit of your background. I'm interested. 
and he shot us back an email. I don't want to tell the man's story. I want him to come on and tell it. God damn. Yeah, it's. And yeah, every single time that you message me and we're like, hey, we got so and so on, and god damn, you got to hear the story. And I'm like, okay, he's playing it up. No, it's the same thing again. It's, it's nuts. Uh, honestly, they need to have, there's got to be a documentary on these guys, especially these dudes in the bench that are chasing the 700 pound. <clears throat> if you did it like, you know, like the pumping iron documentary style, these, some of these guys' background stories is just, you couldn't write it. Like, you oh, couldn't. Yeah. Like, what the, wait, till you, wait till this gentleman comes on here and tells you his background story, him growing up. Um, um, Julius Maddox, James Key, um, Jason Mike, chasing that as a master, yep. chasing the world record, getting the GOAT Wilkes total uh, for bench. It's just phenomenal with some of these the stories. Even, even um, let's, let's even bring it on to the women's side uh, in terms of bench gods. Um, Jen Thompson and her comeback from that massive injury in her early 40s. And winning the world championships, you know, like some of these people, it's insane with the, the type of stories they got. And um, absolutely, if you sat down, like I, weightlifting in and of itself, just watching someone bench press, isn't going to thrill you. But it's when you care about the outcome because you're emotionally invested in that yeah. character, and you're like, oh my god, I hope they get it. Oh geez, only all five converge and are shooting for the same goal, and only one can get it. That's when you're like, I can hardly yeah. watch, but I can't look away. Someone's got to go for it. There can only be one. It, that is a riveting, that's, that's the documentary everyone chases. Um, I, I would love, like, you know, if, I don't got time to put it together, but if I could, I would. I would totally do it if I could, but I've got no video skills whatsoever. So. Yeah, well, or I mean, time, or money, or... Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of hoops. There's a lot of hoops. But um, it's just a phenomenal, at the very least, we could bring these gentlemen their story out. Um, so anyways, James Strickland, also called Swim Hack on uh, his Instagram, and he will get into, I had no idea why he had that either. Swim Hack, what the shit does that got to do with anything? And um, Especially when you look at his Instagram photo. It's, because it's, it's just thing, yeah, that's, I thought it was, I thought it was something like calling himself a shark or something, or like it was yeah. something that I didn't get. You know, people call themselves lions, or gorillas, sharks, just, maybe? Or he just thinks he's a shitty swimmer? Like, yeah, I don't know, but um, apparently uh, the exact opposite, and it's just like you would think. Yeah. He's, he's like an Eddie Hall. He was a swimmer. I'm going to let him tell his whole story, but uh, let's give him a shot anyways. I'm going to give him a ring right now and see what's up. All right. So we have James Strickland, um, who on social media is known as the Swim Hack. Is that right? Swimhack, that's correct. That's right. So how, um, just so for everyone listen, how did you get that monarchy in the Swimhack, the handle? Well, it honestly started way back, like, uh, late 90s when bulletin boards were popular. Uh, kind of the internet was in its infancy, and uh, my uh, sport at the time was swimming. And naturally, being kind of a, a computer guy, uh, you know, hacker, if you will, uh, Swimhack became my uh, username because it wasn't taken. And uh, uh, kind of stuck with me throughout the years. I remember okay. the freaking internet in the '90s, my friend. I remember the. I remember a time before the internet when the internet first came, and it was like, "Oh shit, what's this?" And my dad had a computer, and we were surfing around. I was into boxing. There was like one boxing page, you know, when there was like one page for something, and it was so few options. And there was like chat forums. Yep. I were just talking. For whatever talking, there's no like real direction on them. The good yep. old days. Yep. 
And now people have nothing but the internet. They grew up and that's all they know is the internet. Social media, when social media first started, it was like, what the hell is Someone explaining to me Facebook I was one of the first people on Facebook. Like I was in the original, (laughs) no, I was one of the original, like when they, uh, not like the Harvard stuff, but when they first started releasing it to schools. Wait a minute. I was the first friend who was on Facebook. Justin Timberlake played you? Yeah. That's you? Because you look different in real life. Yeah, I'm actually <laughs> a little less charismatic. <laughs> but no, after they initially like I said, they launched it. I was what? my first friend on Facebook. What do you mean? Out of my entire social circle. So okay, okay. How did you become one of the first people? Sorry, James. Look, I gotta get this figured out. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I James, <laughs> Yeah, James. Like, oh, it's one of those things, things where same thing. Like, ended up hearing about it. I can't remember how I heard about it because it's so goddamn long ago. Yeah, and you were one of the first yeah. people. Like, when you say one of the first, you're talking... my entire social circle. Like, as I said, like, I was... No other friends on it. Yeah. Nobody else knew about it. Nobody had actually heard about Facebook. You hopped Canada. on there and it was like a yeah. ghost town. You're Pretty like, much. Nobody's on here. Where the fuck is everybody at? Really? What year was this? If you say 2011, get out of my house right now. You're wasting my time. <laughs> 2006, I think? 2006? I think I... What time... When did you go on Facebook? 2005, 2006. Or somewhere in that... Ah, you get... 2007. I think it was that was 2007. It must have been, because I came on 2007, and I remember people telling me what Facebook was. How it was like a page, and you read people's personal stuff, and you become their friend, and I was like, okay. And at the time, it was basically MySpace, and I was wondering how it's different. Yeah, I remember yeah, I was, MySpace. Yeah. Yep. I was MySpace. Yep. And I actually went the other day and was looking for my old MySpace, and I found it. And I really? I can't oh, find God. it again. I'm sure if I looked hard enough. I would be, so, I would, I would be, ter- I would be terrified oh. to see my old MySpace. Is it still up? I just assumed yeah, it's, it's like it's for all, it's for bands a little bit still, but it's mostly just for the uh, legacy of it. It I, that's not necessarily a legacy I need. Up. That is not. <laughs> I should probably if it's still up, I should go delete my page. Holy smokes, that could be embarrassing. Yeah, I uh, I didn't know people could find my old stuff. I thought like, oh, it's dead. It's probably off. No, it's, it's up. Whoa. No, all those dick pics and stuff you sent <laughs> over the years, they're, so, they're still out of there. You can't get rid of that shit from the internet. <laughs> so, um, how did you find it? Did you just go to MySpace and Google your name? Or search your um, name? About five years ago, I heard somebody else did it. And so I just Googled and found, you know, obviously it's on MySpace. But if you Google it, it's a little easier because Google search engine is better than MySpace's. Yeah. But um, just the other day, I went on to MySpace and actually searched for my email, some of my old email addresses that I used, and I was able to find it that way. Holy moly. So, and it, like, it sent me my login information. And I was like, oh. <laughs> of course, I, I didn't even use MySpace, honestly. I, my wife used it. And, of course, this was back when we got married in 2004. And she had one, and she was really into it. And I was just like, eh, I don't really care about all this stuff. But I got on it just to see if I could post a few things, and, and, I, and I just really didn't care. So honestly, I just I had like this very dull MySpace account. But then when Facebook hopped in, I was like, oh, I like this. This is much yeah. better. Yeah, it's, Isn't it intriguing how some of these things just come are massive? At one point, massive. Like those guys, those gentlemen started MySpace, and everyone, all the backers behind it made oodles of money. And then real quick, ghost town. Done. You were completely wiped clean. And that's kind of like... It makes you wonder, will Facebook, Instagram, YouTube maybe, because now people are going into podcasting. Some YouTube stars, some accounts aren't what they used to be. And you're thinking like, are they going to go to Blockbuster? Are they going to turn to Blockbuster? To yeah. our Netflix? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if you know the Blockbuster story. Apparently, Blockbuster was sold the Netflix digital model first, and they passed. 
because they said, yeah. you know, yeah. with all due respect, they're kidding themselves. Yeah, well, yeah. They're, they're thinking with all due respect, we're knee deep invested in this, um, and, and we don't think it's going to go anywhere. And Netflix, which at the time was like a vending machine, um, and you yeah. popped in, was like, oh, well, we're, that's why number two is more dangerous than number one. Whoever's number two needs to come up with some ideas, be innovative. Whoever's number one is trying to hold firm. Like, nah, we're not going to change. It's too scary. So number yeah. two, who's just a vending machine, is like, we got to do something. So yes, let's go digital. Bam! Blockbuster's dead. Yep. I, 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 think that, I, I think that's a perfect segue into lifting because if you're number one, you better watch your back. It, literally, because everybody's behind you. But if you're number two, especially like going into a meet, it's always a little more comfortable because the pressure's not on you. Yeah. Now it yeah. is, but it's not on you directly. People are, tend to be looking at number one. Number yeah. two is making moves, and all of a sudden they're number one. So, and that's yeah. exactly yeah. what happened with Facebook and MySpace and Blockbuster and Netflix. You know, exactly with um, in sports in general. Uh, I'm a big UFC fan, and Randy Couture was like because of his age and how lately late he started MMA at 34, which is when you started powerlifting, and um, because of his age, people overlooked him. In every fight, he was always the underdog because by the time he started hitting like championship fights, he's like 40, et cetera. And they're like, how do you, you feel disrespected going into these? He said exactly what you said. He's like, I love it. I have no pressure. I sleep yeah. good. I sleep good. I eat good. If I yeah. lose and it's a great battle, people are like, God damn, that guy gave him a go. Good for you. That was close. I get credit for losing close. Whereas he goes, <laughs> if I win, <laughs> you know, which is amazing. If I win, I'm an absolute star and people love it. He's like, I would never change a thing, which is kind of like uh, like you said, right? Enjoy yep. the number second place. Um, yep. so, so bring it to yourself. Um, we're saying in the intro, we've had, you know, a couple guys on here, big bench guys um, like Julius Maddox, uh, James Key, Jason Mike, you know, like all phenomenal stories. And I said, I shot you a message and I wanted to have you on here because um, in bench right now, it's almost like a little bit of a golden era where we have so many guys chasing that 700 pound bench and it's got people excited again. Like if, you know, you feel it tangible, people are talking about it who aren't normally bench people. And every time we have someone on, damned if they don't have a riveting background story. So I shot you a message and I wanted to get you on. And it's only a plus, only a plus of like, well, let, let's see what his background story is. And I tell Paul, I go, God damn, Paul, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> James has got a hell of a story himself. Um, so let's let's get into it, if you don't mind, because a lot of our listeners might not know it all. So let's maybe okay. take it from the top. Well, uh, let's take it way back. Um, I grew up without a dad. Uh, and so basically, and, and without getting into too much of the detail, because honestly, I don't know all of them. And my mom and I have a very good relationship, but I think... You know, when uh, you have divorces and separations and parental things and custody, you start getting into some emotional stuff. And um, I think it was just a, one of those situations where they got married a little too early. Uh, you know, I was probably the reason. Uh, this was not in the eight. I was born in 1980. Um, they had kind of a falling out. I lived with my mom for the next seven years. Now, I didn't know this until later on in life that I hadn't seen my dad since I was like one. Oh. Uh, and I didn't know the reasons or anything like that. I just figured... Because my mom told him he died in, uh, told me that he died in a um, uh, uh, an oil rig accident, like on a helicopter. It just it was mostly just to protect me from the the violence of what actually happened. Uh, so I grew up, you know, going to school. Just people would say, "Hey, where's your dad?" And I'm like, oh, "I don't have one." And 
you know, you don't have somebody to throw a football with you and go to the games. And I'm like, man, just, and it was a little weird, but I didn't know any different. So I really didn't, I didn't grow up with like a, a chip on my shoulder thinking, you know, I don't have a dad, so I'm, I'm less than somebody else. I just didn't know. It's like a blind person, you know, they, yeah. they're, they're blind their whole life. They have no idea what it's like to see, but if they were able to see it, you know, it'd probably be miraculous. Um, yeah. So I grew up great mom. Like I said, she's still around and she's still cares and everything, but uh, she wasn't a really big disciplinarian, uh, and I get it because who wants to go to work for eight hours a day and come home and their kid who's been, you know, throwing chairs at teachers, I was that guy, mm. uh, just because I didn't have that dad to bust my butt when I got home, uh, and mom was just like, look, it's kind of a pick and choose type of situation where she spent all day at work, she didn't want to go home and discipline her child, she wanted to give me candy and hug me and, you know, watch TV and just hang out and be a parent versus what did you do today, what did you do today? Uh, and that was kind of the story of my first probably 10 years minimum up till probably 14 years of my life is I just didn't have that, uh, that structure at home with the dad figure around. Uh, so come to find out, I, mean, I was very inquisitive, uh, just like my kids are. And I would ask questions like, where's my dad? What happened to him? How did he die? What kind of helicopter was it? You know what? Yeah. I wanted all the details. And uh, she one day she said, look, I can't lie to you anymore. Sit down. I'm going to tell you what happened. And this was literally somehow or another right around the time that it actually happened so i don't i think she was just telling me this before he died just so i wouldn't ask about it he's gone he's no longer around well we were living in fort worth uh, uh texas at the time i was born in houston moved to fort worth and then moved back to houston when i was about eight uh well, actually seven because in may i've got the dates i think it was may 19th or something like that he was married to a, a, a new lady, uh, and they I guess they didn't have any kids, but they, they were married probably for a few years at that point. Uh, so he had moved on. My mom had moved on. I had no idea where they were. I'm sure she didn't either. She probably just didn't care at that point. And uh, she saw on the news that uh, basically James Wade Willingham, which is his name, died uh, helping a lady and her eight-year-old daughter on the freeway, a uh, very busy intersection uh, at that time, uh, still and um, the two guys basically hopped over the barrier. And I still, it's weird how this happened, but I've seen their police report, so I know that it did happen this way. It's just really weird that some, two guys would walk across the freeway and try to rob somebody. But um, he was helping try to start the car. Um, one of the guys pulled out, a, well, pulled out a gun, obviously, to rob the lady uh, and her daughter, who was eight. And then he lunged at the guy and ended up getting shot in the, uh, in the temple. He later died that night at the hospital from the gunshot wound, so he didn't even know, I'm sure, what happened at that point. Um, I didn't know that extent of it until I was married and my wife was like, hey, tell me more about your dad. Yeah. And I went, I don't know that much, honestly. I know this, this, and this. I know he was shot, but I don't know anything else other than that. So the details that I just gave you was what I learned within the last 10 years. Oh, wow. uh, so I had no idea how violent it really was. And I'm kind of glad because that probably would have bothered me growing up, uh, knowing that and, you know, my fear of guns and things like that would have probably been manifested. I don't have that. I mean, I have respect, but not fear. Mm. Uh, and I don't have, uh, I don't know, any kind of like, I didn't, when I was growing up, I didn't resent like my mom for not being with my dad or my dad not being around or how it happened. Cause I didn't know. And so yeah. it might've been a good thing. Um, but you know, to not jump around a little bit, but, uh, I ended up calling the lady, uh, cause I went, we went through the whole police report. I 
I saw things that I probably a son should never see, but I, I, I was so curious. I want to know the facts. I want to know who who did it, where he's in prison at, and I eventually, and this is kind of fast forward, I, I eventually met the guy. Now, Holy was, shit, wow. James! <laughs> well, and it wasn't like, you, most people would think, did you rip his head off? And I thought, it, it, it there wasn't a connection like that to where I, I really wanted to. Now, if I was the victim and I was there, I'm sure they would have never let it happen, but and not, not that I'm a small guy, but um, I, I just wanted to hear from his mouth what he's what his side of it was because he's been in there for 30 years now and he's in it for life. Uh, but I wanted to just tell him, hey, look, I've read everything. I've read the police reports. I've talked to the investigators who are still around. I've talked to the victims. Um, I know the truth. You can't lie to me and tell me that it went off by accident or whatever. I mean, you, yeah. you were going there to rob somebody. Even if it went off by accident, you still shot the guy who died, and now I'm without a dad. Um, but I talked to the lady, and she was kind of scared because she's like, oh, my God, somebody called me from 30 years ago telling me that she's uh, that he's the uh, the son of the the guy who helped me. Yeah. And I'm sure you know, there's some, uh, and of course, when we talked, there was a lot of um, uh, just emotion because she was like, look, he practically saved our lives. I mean, yeah. it could have been very well been me and my daughter, and her daughter had to go to counseling and things like that for a long time. But I just let her know that, you know, I'm still around and that if, if I can help it, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't want him to ever get out. And that, you know, I would never let her, uh, let never let her information out and things like that. But just to kind of touch base, and let her know that I was around. And I don't think she even knew that I existed. Yeah. Uh, but you know, kind of jumping back, I learned that I have a half sister uh, from the same dad. Wow. So uh, I, 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 you know, my 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 wife helped me do a lot of that research. So we actually went out and met her and her family and her kids. Uh, so I've got two nieces and a nephew that I didn't even know existed. Um, and this is literally the last probably 12 years, I think, is, is about right. Um, so it, it ended up kind of being a blessing in disguise. But growing up, and this is kind of going back, you know, I didn't have that male figure in my life to, to set goals with, to really kind of drive me. And not, not taking anything away from my mom, but she's just very introverted, uh, very quiet, not a goal setter, not a you know, go-getter, winner type attitude. And I didn't even know what that was until I was about 14. Uh, no, I was, sorry, I take that back. I, I got a big brother from Big Brothers and Sisters of Houston, which is just a, a nonprofit organization that will attach um, young men and young women who are of various backgrounds. You know, it may be that they're, you know, orphaned. They may be that they have a dad who's in the military or a mom that's just never, who knows? Whatever reason they need a mentor in their life, and they take them under their wings and their, their background check, you know, they, um, you know, pretty much it's up to, to the big, uh, quote unquote, the big, what they would want to do with the little, which I was. And he would say, you know, on the weekends, we'll just go out and, you know, I'll throw the football with you. Um, the Houston Oilers uh, at the time, not the Texans now, but uh, the Houston Oilers at the time had like three guys on the team who were also big brothers. Mm. So I got to meet Mike Munchak when he was playing offensive uh, offense on uh, the uh, the Oilers, Warren Moon, some of those guys oh, who wow. had little little brothers. So I got to hang out with these guys and literally play like touch football with them in Rice Stadium over in Houston. That's crazy. While they were still NFL stars. Yeah. Uh, and of course, if I was bad at school or I didn't get good grades or whatever was the goal for the, the week or the month, he would say, look, you, you can't come. I can't come pick you up. We can't go have ice cream. We can't go and, and play football. And I just would be devastated. But 
he held his ground and basically was that dad kind of figure. Yeah. And it straightened me up real quick because over the next probably three or four years, I realized that if I wanted, uh, I needed to follow the rules. I needed to be respectful of, of my authority, my teachers, my, you know, whatever, uh, and my mom as well in order to get um, the respect back or to be able to have other kids like me and just learning the hard truths of life that I think a lot of kids nowadays don't have. And, and it's primarily because they don't have that, that father figure that mm. is doing their job anyways uh, in the house or, or in their life. And um, so not, you know, touching on that, that'll tell you kind of why I've done some stuff recently uh, with like nonprofit organization that I've kind of got spearheaded but it's from this past of mine that I realized firsthand what it's like to not have a dad and what the consequences of not having a dad are. It could have been really, really bad. Um, luckily, and this is literally uh, sheer luck, um, that I didn't get into a lot more trouble than I did. I mean, I could have, there was a few times when uh, I set a fire to a neighbor's house and put it out to, to be the hero. Oh, uh, and I don't really, yeah, I, I don't put that out there, but I didn't set fire. Like it wasn't a horrible fire. It was like a closet fire. Yeah. And uh, I was just doing it for attention to see, if, you know, it was cool to see, watch things burn. You know, I, I didn't yeah. realize that that could be something serious, but had there been somebody in the house and it caught off, I mean, I could not be, I would probably not be sitting here today because of that, because yeah. that's, you know, crime. Um, so I, I got real close brushes with the law, um, you know, arrested a few times for, you know, speeding and, and just little things like that, that I got to sense the other side, um, and, and realized that I didn't want to do anything so bad to actually be stuck in prison or, you know, be, uh, not a part of society in a good way. So I learned real quick where my limits were. And I, I stayed within those, uh, with the guidance of, you know, having this, uh, my, my male mentor, his name was, or his honorary barber. And I attribute, I would say almost every single bit of who I am as a man, like my goal setting ability, my winner attitude, uh, you know, all the cliche, you know, buzzwords, um, my faith even, uh, to his, um, leading me basically. And he wasn't ever pressured. It was just, this is how I am. And I wanted to be like him. You know, it's just like anybody, you know, you see your hero, you want to be like them. Yeah. And, um, you know, now that I've told him all this, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, emotional for him because he didn't realize that he had that much of an impact. And so even the other day I was telling him, I was like, Hey, I was published in a magazine. I was published in a, a couple of news articles. And, uh, you know, I attribute a lot of this stuff to you. And he's like, really? Like, are you sitting like, and so when he, when he heard that, it was kind of, I know that, that it struck a chord uh, and it should, because he's, he is responsible for that. Um, and not to take anything absolutely, you know, away from my mom, but she had that nurturing, caring uh, yeah. uh, part about her. He had the strong arm, but he never touched me. I mean, it was never a discipline thing. It was just a, because he, I mean, he really couldn't, but, um, it was more like, Hey, you know, if you're going to be, uh, wanting to come out with me and hang out and get rewarded, I don't have to do this. This is volunteer. He's like 26 years old and I'm like 14. So he's like, look, I'm a young man. I, I go out and date. I can do anything I want. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm taking my time out of my life to spend it with you to help you out. And it might have started, and I don't know this. I mean, I'm sure it's not because he has a really good heart. But as a young man, it could have been something selfish. It could have been, hey, I'm just going to do this for the, the sake of it. But it turned out something very, very good for both of us. And it changed us both. And I'm sure it didn't for that you know, reason. But, you know, I know a lot of people that do things like that uh, for themselves. You know, and it's just kind of showy, showy. But 
Uh, either way, we've been lifelong friends. He was at my wedding. He's got five kids, so that kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's, I haven't really seen him firsthand on how he, how he was a dad, but I've mimicked a lot of what I see, uh, how he treats his kids with my kids, how I treat my wife and how he treated his wife, uh, and just making me who I am um, so that I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Because honestly, I have no idea what it's like to be a dad because I didn't have one. Mm. Um, but he, you know, interesting thing he's told me the other day is he was the first one to ever take me to the weight room. Oh, and, really? Uh, I found this out three weeks ago. Um, and it, it was like 45-pound bar, and he probably helped me move and all that kind of stuff. But I was like 10, I think. Uh, and he said, you know, I remember this time taking you to the, to the Charlie Club, which is a little like a YMCA type place, uh, when you were about 10. And I remember you walking in. The guy said, you're too young to come in here. And he's like, well, he's with me. I'm just going to grab something. I was going to show him around the, the weight room and just kind of we'll, we'll be out in five minutes. So the manager let us go in there. And he goes, hey, you ever been on one of these? And I'm like, I don't remember that. When he started telling me the story, I thought, dude, I remember being there. I remember sitting here. The bench was this color. The bathrooms were right there. He goes, so it was the first time you ever in the weight room. And he goes, I won't take any credit for that. But <laughs> no, you take the credit. I don't care. You, you know, the first person to ever have me in a weight room. Um, and I didn't really care about weights. And then I didn't, you know, for me, it wasn't really a big deal until, honestly, 2005, 2006. Um, so, but that's the, the kind of the background of the, the whole dad story. Mm. Um, and I actually, when you asked me to kind of put things out there, I've never really put that down on, uh, I mean, I've told people various pieces of it and, you know, my wife obviously knows it, close friends, but I've never put that out there to the public because it's just, to me, I don't see that as a big deal. I mean, because it's, it's not like, I'm sure it has, it has shaped me on who, how I am and things have happened in my life because of, if that never happened, then I'm sure the, the snowball effect wouldn't have brought me to this point. But um, I'm not one to get hung up on the past and kind of think, okay, well, if that's who I am or who I was when I was younger, it has no bearing on who I am now. Uh, but it, I agree, you know, not to toot my horn, but that is an interesting story. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I could see that, how that could be seen that way. Um, but there are some times when I, I think back and I go, you know, it'd be nice to have a dad around that I could say, hey, dad, look what I did today or hey, uh, you know, this is this is what my new accomplishment is in life. What do you think? You know, hey, what do you what do you think about your grandkids? And uh, so, and that does get a little emotional because I won't ever experience that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it makes me be the dad I am. So I, I, I you know, I do have so I have, I have some follow up questions here. Um, okay. I got a few of them though. So bear with me because there's a lot to digest. You have quite a story, <laughs> my friend. Um, so, A, uh, I, I want to talk about the meeting with the lady that your dad had um, intervened with as like kind of um, her reaction upon meeting you as well as you, when you met the man who actually had murdered your father. That's the part I want to. That, like, okay. um, but before we get to those, um, I, when you were a child and you started that fire and you wanted to be the hero who put it out, I mean, it's interesting, like, child psychology, all this stuff, like, when you grew up without a father and you, you, you're not getting that attention and um, like it all, there's reasons, right? It's, like kids are innocent, you know, but, but it's, I think it's like the world that kind of scars kids. You know what sure. I mean? Like, yeah. um, so when you're in that situation, do you, why do you think you were, you were looking for that attention, that recognition? Was it, because obviously there's moving pieces and even if your mother didn't say it, you knew if you asked about your dad, your mom was avoiding like, 
there's obviously stuff going on and you're confused and you're different, growing up different. You know, why do you think you, you, you're like, I, I'm going to start a fire, put it out, I want, and you're basically doing it for attention and you knew it. Um, like, was there something obvious, you know, was, what, what do you think? Well, I, I don't know if it's as deep as that. I mean, I can see, and I, and I get pretty deep on certain certain points, but I think this was just, I had an opportunity where it was after school one day, or I was, I was left home alone, uh, you know, when I was eight, 10, I don't even remember exactly how old I was, but I was young enough. I was obviously a juvenile. Um, the, uh, and I, I proved that because I didn't go to jail for it. I mean, yeah, let's just yeah. put it this way. Um, but I, I was just sitting around. I had some hurricane lamp fluid, which I was fascinated with because it caught fire so fast and I would burn things in the, on the stove or whatever, just, you know, harmless stuff for the most part. I'm sure it could have gotten dangerous, but one day I just thought, you know, it'd be cool to, well, I, I don't even know why I thought this particular closet or whatever, but I saw something, I was like, you know, this would be cool to see what happens if this, if this happens and it got out of hand. Yeah. And I went, oh my God, this is going to burn this place down. And immediately I realized my, uh, my mistake and I grabbed their water hose, turned it on high and hosed the whole thing down. But Jesus. it is literally charred like this oh, yeah. probably four foot by four foot space and, and diapers and whatever else they had stored out there. Nothing crazy, like nothing really expensive, but it could have easily gone into the house or exploded something and gotten really out of hand. Uh, but, and then, so I put it all out and of course I knew at that point, oh my God, they're going to see this. And I'm like, um, I'm just gonna, no, I'm going to call 911 because this is a fire. So I called 911. I was like, yeah. Hey, there's a fire. I just put it out. Uh, and I was scared more than anything. And I yeah, think the yeah. story at that point unfolded into, I did it, uh, because I saw it. I saw it out my window because they were uh, interrogating me. They were like, why did this happen? How yeah. did you know about this? You know, they don't just, fires don't just start in closets for no reason unless it's, you know, electrical or whatever. Yeah. Of course, I thinking this way. And, uh, you know, the investigator, I remember sitting at my dining room table where my mom was sitting right next to me. And uh, they were like, look, if you don't tell us the truth right now, we're going to take you to jail and you're never going to ever get out. And I'm like, so I'm scared to death. And I'm like, yeah. uh, okay, fine, fine. I did it. I did it. Because I think, and of course, they were putting the pieces together because next door to, actually, it was it was across, it was like a, a driveway, like with townhome types set up. And the next door neighbor, I had taken my dumb ass <laughs> as a kid. I took the empty hurricane lamp fluid and just flicked it over to the neighbor instead of getting rid of it or throwing away. I, mean, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. being vengeful necessarily or you know, trying to get away with something, but yeah. I was. I just didn't know how. And uh, they saw that. I'm sure they were like, well, we're going to find your fingerprints on there. We're going to know you did it. And if you just tell us the truth, you might get off easy. And I went, fine, fine. I did it. I did it. I did it. Yeah. Of course, uh, they, you know, they talked to my mom. And I'm sure that was probably like, look, we can't take him to jail because he's eight or 10 or whatever how old that was, yeah. but he will go to court for this. He will pay a fine. You, you will pay a fine. And I ended up having to go in front of a judge, you know, all that kind of stuff as I think it was just as a juvenile. So she was in front of the judge and we had to pay a fine and I had to do community service for a while. And then I had to do a tour of an arson museum. Holy and that Jesus. freaked me out because I realized at that point, just how dangerous it was like there's it's a very famous arson museum in houston i've been there since then uh, and it, it goes through like simple stuff like people who are trying to kill people people who died in fires kids who started fires and accidents happen and you know kids who left uh, you know christmas lights on things like that and uh just showing all the dangers of fire and i'm just i was still fascinated with it but i was like that's ah, not something i was yeah, ever yeah. Uh, not to mention i i thought 
you know, they're telling me the whole time, look, if you don't do every single thing right and you go to this museum and you go to do the, uh, the community service, you're going to go to jail and you never see your parents again. And I'm like, Jesus. okay, whatever you want to do. So, you know, that was my first real big scare. Uh, and, of course, it, it changed me. I, I didn't really – I changed messing with fire. I definitely did not mess with fire again. Uh, but I still was, you know, just a very rambunctious kid, very uh, hyperactive. Uh, you know, all, I, I'm sure that, and I don't want to get into a political debate with some people, and society's a little bit sensitive these days when you start talking about ADHD and hyperactivity disorders and all these different titles that we have for these medical conditions. I think, honestly, I just needed my butt beat a little bit. I mean, I just needed a discipline, a disciplinary at home to really say, look, <laughs> as soon as these police leave, you're going to get reamed. Like, yeah, you're gonna yeah, get yeah. Seriously mean. You're afraid of consequences. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I spent the better part of my childhood disrespecting people and my, my parents or my parent and my teachers because um, I could. I was just uh, abrasive. Any, any type of authority I just didn't like. And I still, honestly, to this day, don't – I mean, I don't know anybody that really just likes authority and thrives off of being told what to do. But I think that kids – and I have a daughter that's this way very much so, but she has me to keep her in the lines. And so when she gets older – I think that's going to be a very big benefit, a very good asset to her personality or character is when somebody says, look, you can't do that. She's not going to break the rules necessarily and, and get in trouble to do it. She's just going to figure out a way to do it. And the people are going to go, where'd you get that idea? It's like, well, you told me I couldn't. And so I ended up doing it. And so it can be massaged into an actual good trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I attribute that to probably most of my success is I just won't take no for an answer. If I find something I enjoy and I want to do, I immediately go to figuring out what's the record, what's the best that somebody in this in this discipline or this sport or this job or whatever has ever done. Let's aim for that and from the beginning. And most people think that's crazy talk. They just think, just be, just be normal, just be lazy. Why do you have to be the best at everything? It's a curse, but it's a blessing at the same time. So hey, I hey. think... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And I was going to say, so all of this wrapped up, I mean, I've had a lot of time to, you know, obviously in my life, 38 years old, but it's not all the time, but I've had time to reflect back because, you know, I, I realized that I have something special when it comes to certain talents and things like that, not just powerlifting. And I wonder, why isn't everybody else that way? And it's not that I'm jealous or that I think they should be jealous of me or that I think I'm better or vice versa. I just try to study myself and try to figure out, you know, if somebody asks me, why do I do something? I, I want to be able to give an educated answer, not just because I don't want to do what you do. You know, I, just, I want to be like, hey, I do this because this, 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 this. And it's probably because, or it is because of my background growing up and different experiences in life that has molded me into this type of person. Not just, I woke up one day a winner or, you know, a, a world-class powerlifter or whatever you want to say. Yeah. It's true that like, if you try to change one thing, you change everything. Yeah. And some, everyone's guilty of this. I look back so many times and be like, if I could go back 15 years, get a hold of myself and say, I need you to do this. I need you to do that. Because by now, something might have changed. Or just like some the kind of effect. But, but yeah. you would change everything. Uh, like, I remember th- like little things. Like, oh, I wish when I was in university, I would have took it earlier. Or I would have went to this university instead. I could have ended up over here. But then... I met my girlfriend who, like, we're getting married um, in my mid-30s. This shit would have been, God knows what would have happened, right? Like, it's, you change one thing, you change everything. And then there's certain things you're like, I wouldn't change anything if a man I wouldn't have that. 
So you, you can't, you gotta be, I'm not trying to get all fucking mushy here. You, this is your fault, man. You're getting all emotional. You're bringing this out of me. But, but, um, but it's true where like, if you change one thing, you, like all these other things later on in life don't necessarily fall into place. And you being, um, like, uh, I still want to talk about when you met the man who murdered your father and stuff, I want to move too far ahead, but you being who you are today and your story, and I know we're going to get into your work you do now and how you go out and talk to people, etc. We wouldn't have any of that out of you if it wasn't you. And, and if it wasn't like your, your special case, you know what I mean? And, and you, you being the guy you are who could talk and do these things, like, you know, it's, you change one thing, how many people do you turn around and help with your story and with your public speaking and mentorships? Like it's, um, it is, it's, it's one of those deals where you're like, fuck, if I changed, if I just grew up like everybody else, what, would you be a Joe 9 to 5 guy? That's not you though. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, you can go back and my wife and I actually have, we have a wonderful relationship. We have conversations almost nightly where we're like, Hey, if you could go back in time to a certain time and, and change something, what would you change? And, and there's very few things that we would, I mean, we say it, but would we really change it? Probably not. But we'd like to just go back and just be a fly on the wall and just watch it happen. Like watch it unfold just to experience it again. And just to try to figure out, you know, how does it affect today? Because yeah. I, yeah, I'm totally with you on that as far as, I mean, I'm sure there's some other way to explain things, but, you know, if, if like, for, for example, my wife and I, we went to the same daycare, didn't know each other. We went to the same, we worked at the same movie theater, didn't know each other. Are you serious? We, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've got like five different things that we've, we've crossed each other's paths five times or so before we met each other in the 20 years, which was 19 years that she was alive, 21 years that I was alive. And then one day, um, she had, she's going to hate that I say this, but she, and she was just like I was though. She like, when it came to school and stuff, like sometimes you'd fail, sometimes you wouldn't, it would be based on base, basically either, you know, this is college. Um, if you were paying attention or if you were goofing off. And so we were still young. So we goof off. Well, she had failed government, uh, that I was taking at a, at a community college of all places, uh, fresh out of the military went and took, uh, this government class cause it was part of a prerequisite for the, um, for the, you know, the major and all that. Um, and I walked in and I literally, I was like, all right, there's one, two, three, four blonde chicks in here. Somebody's getting talked to. <laughs> and, and I was just, and, and the thing is, so for the longest time I was a blonde guy, like blonde. Well, my wife is naturally a brunette. She had dyed her hair blonde. So it was, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I sat out and, um, <laughs> so she said that she noticed me first because I had my I wear flip flops pretty much all the time, and so I have a size fifteen or sixteen shoe depending on what you wear, you know, like Nikes and Reeboks. But it's any fifteen sixteen shoe, and uh, she looked at my foot and went, "Oh my god, that's like a clown foot." Now in her head, come to find out, where you know she needs a study partner, I need a study partner. Was she working on that old mythology? Oh wait, wait, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> She's looking at me right now, making that face. Yeah, I'm not gonna ask her. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and you know, with that said, not to get too far down in this branch, but so there was a third person who was like, "Hey, I need a study partner," and we were both we were all sitting together. So it was like a three, the threesome that we were gonna have. Well, that's a bad way to put it. <laughs> we were gonna go and study in three in a group of three. Yeah. And he didn't. 
we, you know, we exchanged emails and he never responded. So it ended up just being me and Georgia, my wife, you know, now. And we ended up going and studying and uh, built our relationship from there. Of course, I'm thinking, I have, I'm chasing one thing and one thing only. I'm looking to see if you and I can get together, yeah. not let's go study. And yeah. so I don't know what she was thinking. I think she had a boyfriend at the time that was kind of on a rocky relationship. But, you know, all I was like is, I'm a go-getter at this point. I'm figuring out a way. So if you go back and look at all these different scenarios, we probably crossed each other. I probably, you know, if I could go back and play the Times, uh, you know, video of some sort where I never even realized that I knew her from somewhere else, I'm sure I'd be like, oh, my God, I, I saw her 16,000 times. Yeah. Just never talked to her. Or for whatever reason, I just didn't have the reason to talk to her. Um, and now we're married for, what, seven, 16 years now? So um, It's, you know, it's... Because it has to happen. You know, the, I, I'm, a, I'm a football, like, I like football movies. Um, the Al Pacino speech he gave in Any Given Sunday. At the yep. very end, when he says, you know, football's like life. One inch, one second too soon, or one second too late. You know, one inch, you zigged when you should have zagged, and he talks about the inches in life that you fight for. Yep. Yep. And I often think about, like, um, real quick, my story. Me, me and my girlfriend, we're getting married this, uh, this winter. Um, we were, I was the best, like in, in the wedding party for one of my friends and I was with a girl I was currently with and, um, I showed up at the wedding crazy sick, extremely sick. She was at that wedding with a guy she was seeing and, um, we would have been together the whole day, night, drinking, everything, but she would know me as a guy with that girl. I would know her as a girl with that guy and I knew the guy that she was dating. It wouldn't have... It wouldn't have been the first meet. It would have been that first. Yeah. That's not the proper first meet. And let's say we, we our significant others at the time met them. Shit changes when that happens. I was yep. so flipping sick, James. I showed up. All right, let's let's do full disclosure, okay? I'll tell you how sick I was. I was in my parents. <laughs> I was in my parents' basement. I couldn't. Everything was coming out both ends, and it was vicious. And I was like, oh, my God, it's one of those deals. And my buddy's texting me saying, if you can't make it, you can't make it. And I said, this is like one of my friends from like when we were like little kids. I go, bro, you've always been there. I'm going to make it. I told my mom, I go, mom, go get the, go get the fucking suppository. She's like, are you serious? I go, mom, it's for Angus, God damn it. We're going to do this. So I showed up. I had this, because I, I couldn't take any pills. I would puke them up. I had to fucking suppose, listen to me, okay? This is love, okay, bro? You wouldn't do this for me. Um, <laughs> I had to suppository this. <laughs> yeah, you, this is your Friday night. So I had to suppository. <laughs> yeah, you would. Um, that's how you take it regardless. It just works better. It works faster. That was, so once, in, that was I mean, once in college. But um, I had to suppository I showed up at his wedding. I said, my friend, you don't know what I did for you today. So let never our friendship be questioned. And um, But when I got there... It was a big wedding, about 150 people, one washroom, one bathroom, and I couldn't keep anything in me. And I told him, I go, Angus, man, we're going to do the pictures. I'm going to watch you sign, and I got to go. And um, so, uh, you know what? I didn't even have to give all those details for the point I was getting to. Tell me straight walk in, the door was unlocked, and you were unloading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, imagine. So imagine she knew me. Real love. Imagine she knew me as that guy. That's how she met me. She opens the door, oh. and I'm all over the place. But, 
butt's like a head, head in the sink. I'm my, head the is, my head is in the sink. My butt's in the toilet. She's like, your are my butt's in the ba- uh, the garbage. But anyways, um, she's like, you're backwards, son. But um, you see the movie Hall Pass? Yeah. Is it Hall Pass when the, when the, the, the girl sneezes and it's like all over the back wall? Oh, I, oh, is it Hall Pass? Yeah. I don't, know, I don't think it's Hall Pass. Maybe it's not Hall Pass. But it, it I was, know, it's, I remember that scene, though. It was it was bad enough, as soon as I saw, as soon as I seen, there's like a small lineup, because it's still during the day when we arrived. Only one wash from 150 people. I said, oh, hell no. Um, so whatever, I got out of there. But the point is, and that was years before I actually ended up meeting Kathleen. So when I did meet Kathleen, I'm single, she's single, and then, and then we meet on those proper terms. Um, she's actually interested in powerlifting, got a powerlifting coach. And um, it started from there. But we're both in the, in the period of life, the right moment that it could happen. But it just goes to show, like, fuck, man, what if I didn't get sick? That's it. I just wasn't sick. I was there all night with a girl. Who, like, if, as soon as you see someone else in that, you compartmentalize them differently. Like, yep. everything yeah. changes. You know, or, or it's so, like friend zone immediately. And friend zone. You you yep. you know how hard it is to work out of a friend zone. We all know that. But um, uh, I also want to go double back. When you met um, the man who had murdered your father, I gotta yeah. think that would have been for myself. A, I'm, I'm wondering what. How old were you at the time? Because I was. This was just a few years ago. Um, I may have been about thirty. It was before powerlifting. It was so I was probably 32, 33. Um, I was, I, yeah, because I was playing football at the time. I was probably I same weight, but I was just a different body composition. But I was still a big guy. I mean, obviously heavy. Um, I, you know, I was six six oh five bench in the gym, probably two thousand twelve. So this was right around that time and the time that I started powerlifting. So you're a monster. Um, but before you went to go see him, like I can't imagine. Like, I get sweaty palms before a fucking job interview, and who cares? I already got a job. But, like, yeah. I, can, I can't imagine, James, like, walking in there knowing that the night before, the drive there, for the man himself, knowing who's visiting him, and then the conversation, like, if you don't mind speaking on it, I, I, that's just, sure. it's just absolutely, I can't even wrap my head around it. Well, okay, so, uh, you know, he, was, he went to jail, or he went to prison in 87, like, shortly after it happened. Uh, totally denied that everything had happened, you know, said that it was, uh, you know, accident, and that's what the statement says. He had a, a, an accomplice with him who spent, I want to say, about 10 years in prison as a accomplice, but he didn't actually pull the trigger, so he got off. And he's out somewhere, but, uh, you know, they're all, they're 60-something years old now, Yeah, uh, both of them. Um, so the guy who did it, uh, you know, claims that he didn't, you know, didn't do it. It was in his fault. Of course, I see this in the police report and I, somehow or another, I don't know how it even became, because thinking back on it, I don't know what made me want, you know, to be curious about meeting the guy, but I guess I figured I did want to scare him. I did want to do, you know, I had that mindset at first. So I reached out to um, victim services, you know, it's in Texas. So, you know, Texas prison system has like a victim advocation program, or I'm sure how they call it, but where the victim can meet the uh, offender as long as the offender is okay with it. So it has to be mutual. Um, so I, you know, I reached out somehow, and I think my wife helped me, you know, obviously helped me do that, but said, look, you can meet this guy. This is who he is. Now, of course, I had his name and everything. And so they went through probably a six-month process. And I think it's safe to do that because they wanted to make sure they interviewed me several times in person 
Why do you want to meet him? What are you trying to get out of it? Yeah. Obviously, you got to sign something that says you won't attack them, you won't fall, you know, break the rules, and then they have to do the exact same thing on the other side, saying, you know, this victim wants to meet you to foreclosure, you know, and it helps the the offender as well. Which, I mean, you're the offender, but whatever, you know, it's back and forth. And eventually, they moved him from a, a facility in like far west Texas. And literally transferred him to closer to Houston, so that I could just drive a you know a few miles and, and go and meet him. Uh, and he's still there to this day because there's no reason to spend the money to move him back where he was. He's just leaving where he's at. So he's literally 30 miles from me right now. No shit. Uh, so I we planned it all out. Of course, they all knew about it. The whole staff knows about it. But I had a fascination with prisons, not to be in one, but yeah, just. Yeah. The whole, th- you know, the whole correction system. You know, I like to watch those yeah. lockup or fly shows. You know, you know, just it's fascinating because you don't see that life, and it's different than everything else on TV. And it's just, you know, I think we're a society where everything needs to be entertaining. So I, I just find yeah. something that I've been hooked on those shows. So I knew about the inside of prisons, but I'd never really been in one. Um, and so I was interested to tour the prison, but also meet this guy. And I, I really didn't know what to expect because I was nervous as hell, but I was mad, I was angry, I was kind of neutral. I mean, just all these different emotions. Yeah. Uh, but I knew that I was going to be safe because obviously they, I'm going in as a victim. He's going to be behind this, you know, screen or whatever. Uh, and there's armed guards around, you know, all that kind of thing. But I didn't know what to expect. So I went down there early one morning. You know, we had the time set up. They brought him out. He was uh, handcuffed. They handcuffed him to the other side of a table five feet away, 10 feet away from me. Um, and he was handcuffed the whole time and I was just free. I could, I could have done anything at this point, honestly, and nobody would have been fast enough to, to, I, of course I was frisked and all that kind of stuff going in, but I mean, I'm a big guy, you know, yeah. I could have done some damage if I had wanted to. Yeah. Um, and it, it never crossed my mind during the meeting, but it did afterwards. I was like, man, I could have really done something if I wanted it. Yeah. That was not, he was not protected in any way. Um, but I just talked to him and I said, look, I want to hear your side of the story. You know, this is who I am. Obviously, he he, he knew who I was, but he didn't know, like, uh, why I was there, you know, if I was hurt or if I was – what my side of the story was. Yeah. And uh, he didn't know that I had read the police reports and that I had gone through all the, the details. And uh, I said, you know, just tell me what happened that night. What happened, you know, 30 years – it's 30 years now, but it was probably like 26 or 27 years at the time. What happened? And he told me all the stuff and – Half of it was BS. Uh, you know, I knew because I had read the reports, I had read the victim, I had read the, the statement from the lady who was there firsthand, matching that up with everything else, and I went, something you're saying is off. It, either way, it doesn't matter if you did it, you did it, you didn't, you didn't, you know, whatever. Um, and he kept pleading and, and getting very emotional. He broke down and started crying. He's Seriously? like, look, and he was, yeah, he's very, um, he's got a fifth grade education. And he's never gone anything, never done any more educational, um, he's never taken any more classes since he's been in prison. So he's not bettered himself at all. Um, so he, he's, his, uh, his grammar or his, his speaking abilities, he, he, he can't pronounce certain words. He, he literally is like talking to a three-year-old. It's no, really she, weird. Wow. And I felt bad, like compassionate just for another human being. Yeah. Kind of taken out of context. And I was just like, wow, like. I, I, now I know why you were trying to rob somebody. You had yeah. no other way to make money. You know, not that I feel sorry for you because you did this, but I, I at least have compassion. Yeah. Uh, and so I let him tell his whole story, and then he goes, "You know, I didn't do it." And I said, "Well, I said, um, I said you ruined my life." I, I was kind of exaggerating because he really didn't.
but I wanted him to feel bad for what he did because he's never had anybody tell him about like what he nobody he's never had any kind of witnesses come forth from this crime and talk to him. And of course, I wouldn't expect anybody else to do it. That's scary. I mean, somebody puts a gun in your face. Why would you want to go talk to him? Yeah. So I was kind of the outsider that could come in and say, "Look, that was my dad. I don't think you ever knew I existed." And he goes, "I heard something at one point in time, but I didn't know." Um, and he goes, but, you know, I'm glad you're here because I want to tell you my side. I'm like, look, you're, there's nothing you can say to me. If you're not going to tell me that you did it, then everything else is, be sh- you know, bullshit. I don't want to yeah. hear it. Um, you know, I try to be – I try to sound a little angrier than I really was because I honestly wasn't. I was kind of neutral, which was weird because I figured that I would just break down and be mad and sad and be like, you know, you're the reason why I did all this stuff. But it was more like you're just a bad guy who made a bad choice and – I think people can change, but I'm not telling him this, but afterwards I'm thinking, you know, when the parole hearings come up, why would I want this particular person in society? How can they literally contribute? I mean, he's 60 years old with a fifth grade education who's done nothing but crime in his life, because I know his background, I've seen all the reports on other crimes that he's done. Um, All he does is say, can I get out, please, you know, for parole, and that's it. He doesn't go, I've done this, this, and this. I've tried to get this degree. I've tried to better myself or take these classes or counseling, whatever, or admit that I did this crime. And so to me, I'm like, well, you know, I hate to say it because I like to be the forgiver of people, but, like, that's the the definition of a bad guy. Like, you just – if you can't realize, look, I I did something to, to drastically change somebody's life. And not be like, look, I'm sorry, like truly sorry for it. What else can you are you capable of doing? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and that's kind of the gist of the conversation. You know, I I got up you know, before I actually met him. That's kind of backing up. I did a little tour of the prison, so they were getting him ready to come in or whatever. But I walked around, um, and you know, I'm not a small guy, so nobody. It was kind of funny because I was expecting to be heckled a little bit. I mean, I walked around in this maximum security prison with um, you know inmates walking around me but most of them were like behind cells and the guys are just like okay this is cell block B this is where we keep you know our rapists our murderers blah 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 and this is our, our chow hall and this is them fixing food and they're just kind of looking at me and kind of sizing me up and I'm looking at them like I will do something if you attack me I don't care and then, of course they're telling me if anybody attacks attacks you know just just be submissive I'm like oh hell no man <laughs> fight back for my life yeah. and I'm in your house yeah. so I'm, I'm looking at all the exits trying to figure out how to get out yeah. um, but it was really weird because I got to I don't want to say be a prisoner for the day but I got to see firsthand inside and knowing and I really didn't know where the, the guy who shot my dad was I didn't know if I was going to be walking right past him he wouldn't know who I was or anything like that um, but after, you know, hindsight, I, I kind of asked the, the guards and they were, oh, we had him already, you know, handcuffed in this room for an hour waiting for you to get here. But, uh, it was an interesting day to say the least. And, you know, it was a burden off my chest because I finally could say, I met this guy. My mom was not happy about it at all. When she found out that I was, that I met him, she was like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Like this guy's psycho. I'm like, I had to do it. I had to do yeah. it for myself. It was curiosity killed the cat. But, um, also, I wanted to, because if he ever got out, I want to know what he looks like in person. I mean, pictures don't do anything justice. He's an old guy, you know, now he doesn't look anything like his mugshot. Uh, and for my sake of my, for the sake of the safety of my own family, myself, yeah, I don't, I don't think he would ever be that tight, but I don't know that. And I would rather be safe than sorry. So there's yeah. a lot of mixed, you know, reasons, but uh, it was, it was definitely interesting to say the least. I had a few people that I've told this go, they let you in there? Like, <laughs> 
you were a massive guy. Like you're yeah. a 300 pound guy, muscular, walking in bigger than all the prisoners. They didn't think you were going to try something. Like I was like, well, maybe they wanted me to. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they wanted me to. But supposedly he's he's like a a pretty like I heard this kind of through the grapevine. It could be total BS, but like that he's a. Um, Kind of a shot caller in there because he's been there so long. He's an OG, they call him. So he doesn't maybe doesn't lead a gang or whatever. But um, you know, he's uh, I don't want to bring race into this or anything like that because it doesn't matter. But you know, he's not a white guy. Let's put it that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so me going in there, it's segregated. I mean, like if you're walking around as a white guy, you're the enemy to all the other races. Yeah, it's not yeah, because yeah. they're necessarily other races, but that's prison. That's prison lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, so him being another race. I'm sure it was like, oh, you know, you're going to meet with this white guy. What's what's going down? So yeah, yeah. I think if you were one of those other prisoners, you see you walking around with them, they're not looking to talk too much shit in case you were a fucking prisoner. In case like is this dude <laughs> getting to walk into his cell? I would see him an hour later on the fucking yard, and you know, it's like ah, maybe we'll just curb the shit talking or whatever. There's put it this way, there's easier people to talk shit to. If you're trying to yeah. show up a little bit. Yeah, I don't, it's interesting, you know, without getting into the whole, you know, how, and of course, I'm not in prison, I don't know that, but just from the outside looking in, hearing stories, knowing people that have been in and kind of giving me stories, you know, it's not always, it, it, the more jacked you are, obviously, the more protected you are, but at the end of the day, you've got some crazy psychos, you know, skinny kids that are, they'll stab you, they don't care how, how big you are, and those yeah. are the guys you got to watch out for. Yeah, uh, which I, I I totally reasoned with that in real life. You know, people walk around and go, oh man, you're huge. I would never want to mess with you. I'm like, with me, like I'm a I'm a nice guy. I'm not I won't attack anybody or do anything crazy. I will protect my own. But when I was 180 pounds, I was just as ferocious as I am now. So the average guy walking around 160, 185 pounds, if they you don't know if they have any kind of hand 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 skills. You don't know what kind of weapons they have on them. So size is jack. You know, it's great for the gym. It's great for powerlifting. It's great for, you know, performance, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, most of the big guys I know, they're slow as crap. And they can't move. They have no hand-eye coordination. They can't fight. They might be able to pack a good punch. But after two or three rounds, they're, they're you know, they're, yeah, their yeah. cardio is out. Uh, so I think for the most part. But we are talking about prison. So it's kind of a different scenario. You're, you're probably big and jacked in there. You're, you got a lot of anger. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're different than the animals. <laughs> Um, so talking about when you were smaller and then you started getting, so you were swimming initially and off the top of my head, swimming and weightlifting and powerlifting, like you must've been an entirely different human being. How did you get into swimming and what was that like? Like how deep, cause you were really, you weren't just like moonlighting with, you were full on into swimming, were you not? Yep. Um, so when I was 14 and this is, this will take it back as well. This will give a little bit of background on my childhood as well. So I was actually in special ed classes because of behavior problems from the time I was sixth grade, seventh grade until ninth grade and like the beginning of my ninth grade, freshman year in high school. And so half the people that I was friends with in high school didn't know me in middle school because I was in special ed classes. You know, they were like, I was the guy who rode the small bus because I, I couldn't ride the regular bus. It was different times at different classes, sometimes even different campuses. Um, but I also, um, wasn't with the normal PE classes. And so fast forward into freshman year of high school, uh, I was able to join the football team and actually try out and play a little bit. But when we have PE, it was with the special ed classes. And so one day out of, 
I don't know. We 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 go to the gym, and I think they were working on the gym for some reason. And so the, the teacher at the time said, we're going to go to the natatorium. And I'm like, what the heck is the natatorium? They're like, it's a swimming pool. It's an indoor swimming pool facility. Uh, and we're going to do, we're going to swim. And we're all like, sweet. So we brought our bathing suits that day. It was like a field trip for our PE class. So the rule was you had to, and we did this for about a week. So the rule was we had to go and swim eight laps, which is a 200, 200 yards, um, before we could go to the diving well. Because nobody was there to swim. We were there to dive. We wanted to yeah. jump off the diving boards. Because it was PE, they needed us to work out. So we had to swim. So I jumped in and just blew everybody out of the water. Like, I don't know what the times were. If I had to put an example, I'd probably say everybody else swam it in 10 minutes and I was done in like four. Oh, so it's kind of time. Uh, and that's really slow right now, but for non swimmer, that's a really good time. So I would be over the diving well for four or five minutes by myself, and I loved it. So I'd, I'd race myself every day for this week to try to get done faster to have more time for myself. And the swim coach noticed me, and he goes, who's that kid? And he was friends with the, the lady who was the special ed teacher who was kind of in charge of us. And uh, he said, or um, she said, well, this is, you know, James Strickland, and he's, uh, you know, in the special ed class. He goes, whatever. He goes, would you be interested in swimming? And so he called me, or she called me over, and he goes, hey, you know, I'm Coach Bargainer, uh, head of the, of the Hastings swim team. Um, would you be interested in joining the swim team? And I'm like, would I have to wear one of those Speedos? He's like, well, yeah, that's kind of the swimsuit. And I'm like, nah, I'm good, I'm good. And I was kind of a little bit abrasive because that's how I talked to the staff at the time. I was kind of like, eh, whatever. He's like, well, I got a girl, Lori Roth, who's a junior. She could whoop you right now if she wanted to. And I said, and he was like, I, I will bet you that if um, if she beats you, you you would at least try out for the team. And I went, she's not gonna be. No girl's gonna beat me. It's not gonna happen. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that afternoon, she beat me in a 50 free, um, which, you know, lap there, lap back. And she beat me in probably five seconds. Uh, I don't know what time. I'll probably swim like a 35 or something at the time. She was like a 25. Um, and I was just embarrassed. And I said, well, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll try it out. Why not? I'm not going to make it. So I tried out. First couple of days, uh, I'm doing the practices. And, of course, we're swimming three and 4,000 yards a day, which – Really, it's not that much for, an, for a seasoned swimmer, but for me, I was like, oh, my God, this sucks. I couldn't keep the intervals. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't leaving it on the wall, leaving from the wall the same time that everybody else was. And about a week goes by, and the coach goes, well, it was a good try. Maybe you should try diving. So I was like, cool. I'll go <laughs> you're, like, you're like, fuck you. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. I got it now. So I, I don't know if he meant to say that, like, to challenge me, or I, he maybe he knew me better than I knew myself, but... I went over and tried diving for a while, and we started doing the flips, and that was great. You know, you do a flip, do like a flip and a half. Then we started doing this thing called the, um, oh, I can't even remember, but it's basically where you do a flip, and then you throw one arm in front of in, in front of your body and one arm behind. It basically spins you into kind of a side flip, like yeah. where your head and your toes are turning, but your body's not curled up. I, whatever, there's a name for it. Divers would know, but I would just belly flop every time, and they were like, okay, the point of diving is to do the, the discipline and get into the water with less splash. You're not doing that. Come on, let's go. Let's do this. And all the divers were like, dude, this guy sucks. Why is he on the team? <laughs> so he goes, well, there's a good shot. How about you try going back to swimming? And I'm like, dude, you all suck, man. Like, I hate this stuff. This is rough. Yeah. But it was tougher than football. So that's what I liked about it. I was like, this is actually more challenging because I'm having to do something that's not natural for me. And so I went back over to swimming and he goes, look, 
you know, I, I got a, I got a spot for you if you want it, but you can't be a jerk. If you're not going to make good grades, you're not going to get out of special and all this crap, then you can't be on my team. And I'm like, I've never had anybody say that. Like, you need to earn a spot for me to let you on here. You're, I'm not just going to let you slide. And so somehow or another, I got back on the team, started working out. Fast forward to the end of the freshman year, I was the most improved freshman, one of the fastest freshmen ever. Uh, I went 23-10 as my, uh, no, it was 23-07 was my freshman 50 freestyle time. Um, and then sophomore year, I had broken through 22s and then 21s and then state. And you just, it just kept going and going and going. And I really, I mean, that's what helped me, along with having a mentor, but having a sport to go and work out for four hours a day, sometimes before school, sometimes after taught me discipline mm-hmm. and that you know just put me into a different level i thought oh my god you know i played soccer when i was a little kid baseball when i was a little kid but it was little league little league stuff it wasn't i was never pressured to be the best of the best or anything it was just kind of here play have fun but um when swimming came around i attached to it i had something that i was really good at and that i could really just do naturally and got better and better and better and I had a group of friends now because I had gotten out of special ed. I was in mainstream classes. I was making great grades. Um, you know, I had, I was, I felt normal, and I was able to wear my Letterman and, and be a part like a jock, but not. I didn't want to be a jock because that's what, actually one of the main reasons I didn't like, like football is because I didn't want to be the popular kid because of a sport. I wanted people to like me for me. I didn't want to just be like, oh, I'm a star football player. And I was pretty good at football. I just it wasn't challenging to me, uh, and I wasn't the biggest guy either. But I, I think I held my own um but i made a lot of lifelong friends through swimming and so it, it was my first time of being a part of something and so being a sport i thought i'm in great shape i'm learning how to eat and diet and, and you know show up on time uh you know respect my teammates do things as a team um you know, work as a team and um so that's that was swimming as a whole now i stopped swimming obviously after high school went to the military when i got out I still swam a little bit through master's programs, which is just kind of, you know, USA Swimming is a club swim team, which I swam for high school. I also swam for USA Swimming as, a, as an after-school program. So I swam twice as much as the high school kids did. Um, but I also had meets all around the nation, all around the country, you know, and, and state because of this extra. It's, it's um, US, USS Swimming is what it was in the beginning. USA Swimming is what it turned into be, you know, it, it changed their name basically. Uh, and it was like the best of the best. In order to make the Olympic team, you were pretty much a part of USA Swimming. Uh, you paid coaches that were specialized in the sport. Uh, the teams that you were on were segregated into the slow swimmers all the way to the elite swimmers. And I was always in the elite group. So I was swimming against people that were challenging me. But um, with that said, swimming was just a sport that drove me to another level than just going out and tossing a baseball or, you know, and not to take anything away from those sports, but for me, swimming just put it to another level. I mean, it's unnatural to get in the water and and time your strokes, time your breath. It's technique, it's strength. It's not so much weights, but, um, you know, all that said, it, it, it developed like you, like you were saying earlier, that portion of my life, which now, I mean, there's a reason not to fast forward too much, but there's a reason why my upper body is the way it is swimming. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a lie. Um, and there's a reason why I haven't had a lot of injuries. Smart training, yes, but my tendons, my joints, my ligaments, all that stuff were developed through years and hours and hours and hours of swimming each week, each day. Uh, I like to kind of give the example, if you do tricep pushdown, like with the rope, 
you know, you have 80, 90, 100 pounds on average. Well, if you weigh 180 pounds and you're in the water, well, take, let's say half of your body weight because you're not, you're obviously lighter in the water. But every time you take a stroke, you're doing a tricep pushdown. Yeah. So let's say, you know, 180 pounds, that's 90 pounds, make, make the math easy. I'm doing probably 5,000 of those each arm per day with 90 pounds. So dry triceps are just bulletproof. Yeah. So when, when somebody goes, how do you lock out 855 pounds? How do you do triceps six times a week? How do you, you know, never miss a tricep, uh, you know, lockout on your bench? Well, those years and years of swimming trained my triceps to do just that. I never had to, you know, put any major muscle on the triceps. They were just there. Mm-hmm. So when I started benching, my weak link was not the triceps. It was always off the chest. And I could always work the chest and I could always, you know, target the weakness. Um, but that's, you know, fast forward a little bit, but um, swimming as a whole made me, and I've swam longer than any other sport, so I still hold myself to that regard and think, you know, I'm still a swimmer, and I can still swim a pretty meet 50, a meet 100, um, and I do from time to time, I'll put it on Instagram, just to show people, hey, look, even though I'm a bigger guy, it kind of looks like I'm out of shape because I'm a, you know, bigger and strong guy, I'll still get in there and look 99% of the people you out there. You'd the shit out of somebody if they were like, I can beat this guy to swim. At like a pool or something, they saw you yeah. take off, they're like, oh, damn <laughs> I, I have a video from, uh, actually, right after Boston Boston when I went 2100 in August. Like a week later, I went, well, I got to post up my annual, you know, after my, my post-meet swim, and uh, I put on an old Speedo that I couldn't even get on. It was a camera. <laughs> it was obscene. It was, it was a 27... <laughs> A size 27 jammer and my waist well I, my waist is like a 38 but I wear like 40s because of my my quads but uh like those jammers man they're they're tight and I was, I was like it's gonna rip so oh, I have like some shorts on the side of the pool just in case but uh I swam like I don't know maybe a 23 24 and a 50 which is what I swam my freshman year in high school at 185 pounds yeah so, yeah wow and that was right after a meet lactic acids all built up I had no cardio level that I could really Claim to fame, you know. You know, it's, it's Eddie, Hall, pretty, Eddie Hall's a swimmer too, right? Yep, yep. It's which it's you wouldn't ordinarily think like swimming and strength sports, but I mean, there's something there, uh, and it makes sense, like the, all the upper body movements. And, Jer- Jeremy Hornstra, swimmer. Oh no, kidding. Yep. Oh, I didn't yep. know that. It's another guy who's chasing wow. the 700s. Wow, yep. the 700 bench. So how did you end up finding? Um, like, for how far did you go with swimming, man? And when did you start finding powerlifting? Because you came to powerlifting relatively late, but you were already weightlifting. So I I lifted like my maybe my senior year as part of swimming. We go to the weight room. Nobody took it seriously. We just went up there kind of without a coach and just kind of messed around. And of course, bench pressures or whatever I did. And I, I worked up to like two hundred, you know, two hundred pound bench press. And I was like, oh, that's great. I don't have any reason to go heavier or whatever. And we do lat pull downs and biceps and stuff like that. But our, our workout was in the pool. Well, fast forward 2005 or so, um, we would, I was training with another team. This was obviously after high school. And we would go to the weight room twice a week for 30, 45 minutes. And we would do lat pull downs. And I'd always just max out the lat pull down machine. Uh, I did legs, but it, was, it wasn't like squats and deadlifts. It was more like you know, you, uh, the calf raises type thing or the, the, uh, the, the leg extensions. And I would put like eight, nine plates on there. And the, and like they'd have to hold down the back. So I had pretty decent quad leg strength, but put me under a squat rack, you know, I'd probably just collapse. But 
we had had a contest one day with the coach who, of all things, was a prior powerlifter in AAU back in like the 60s. Oh, and he's okay. like 70 years old at this time. Now he's like 80. Uh, and he, actually, he may have been 60, but still, 60-year-old guy. And he would always talk about, uh, he's a good old, he's a black guy, real cool guy. And he would be like, man, back in the day, boys, y'all know about me. I'm a powerlifter. I, I've been 450. And I'm like, dang, that's crazy. I'm like, yeah, but you're huge. He wasn't that big, but I just was like, man, that's that's cool. Well, we went to the weight room one day, and he goes, I want to see how much all y'all can bench press. So I was like, let's do it. I got 300 that day. He lays down and does it for like five reps, puts an extra plate on each side, and does like two reps. I'm like, you just so me up. You know, yeah. so I just kind of left it at that. Well, so not skipping around a little bit, but 2004, 2008, had a chance to at least try out for the Olympic team. Now, making it, whole different story. I mean, you got to be like top three in the nation. Top three is an alternate. Top two, you go. And we're talking some massive, fast times. So, yeah. you know, the chance, I mean, I, I say that I, I tried out, but honestly, let's just put it this way. It would be like the equivalent of me having to go like a 2,500 total, and I only have a 2,100 total. Yeah. It's still a good total, but I was so far away from actually making the team, but I had a shot. You know, because you never know. Things, yeah. things can happen. Things yeah. can happen. But Sports. I was a national level swimmer, so I, you know, I have that under my belt. But like I said, top two in the nation only get to go to the Olympics. Um, and were but, there guys like? Did you see guys like to name drop here? Phelps and shit like that, and that one dude who got robbed, fake robbed, or whatever it was. Um, let's see. I, my mindset is so like Gary Hall. He swam in a few different Olympics. I've I've competed against him. Uh, in fact, I wow. competed against him after I had stopped. I was no, I was still swimming. It was 2005. I have a picture of me up. Uh, it was in Mission Viejo, and uh, he swam a 50 fly, and I swam the 50 free. It was kind of a weird setup because the freestyle you can swim whatever stroke you want. And he was just there as an exhibition swim. So I know he wasn't trying his hardest, but it was cool to be like, yeah, I beat him. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure, man. You know, his dad was Olympian. He was like a four-time gold medalist with the 50 free and 100 free. So he's one of the fastest guys ever in the world, still to this day. I mean, his times are still way up there. Um, but Phelps, I've never swam against him directly in a race, but I've got faster times than he has had in certain events. Oh, but fly dude, that's huge. And I am right. are that's his, insane. You know, yeah. fly, fly and I am are his, are his thing. But, you know, you put him in a 50 freestyle. Now, I'm sure now, because this has been a few years, I'm, I think he's beat me in everything at once. Like his times, lifetime best are better than my lifetime best on my fastest events. But, like, my 100 breast time, uh, my 200 breast time were pretty that they were comparatively faster than I thought they were because I liked 50 free I was a sprinter but my 100 breast overall was much better time um, than my my 50 free was compared to the field it'd be like me saying you know I'm a 2100 pound power lifter but I have a 700 pound bench well the 700 pound bench is yeah. I think, superior to 2100 total but both are pretty rare yeah um, you know in the, in, the, in the scheme of things um, but you know, I um, I had fun with the with the sport because it wasn't like I was ever really chasing to be the best of it. Um, I didn't care to be the fastest swimmer in the world. I just liked swimming. I just liked the the being able to eat whatever the hell I wanted to eat, whenever I wanted to eat, and never have to worry about anything. I was always like five percent body fat, packed out. Like we, you hear about Phelps's diet being just ridiculous. Is that true? Like, were you were you guys eating like just ridiculous calories? Yes. Now he's considerably bigger than I am. I mean, he's he's a taller guy. He's his you know his 
he, his, I don't know how much he weighs, but he was, I was always around 180, 190. He's up in like 230, 240. Just Holy, is he How tall is he? But I didn't know he was that big. Six, five, six, six. And how tall are Ish? you? Six, one. Okay, so you guys are big fellas. Well, and the thing is, like, broad shoulders, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't a little guy by any means. I'm not trying to downplay my size because I was, you know, fairly large compared to the average person. But uh, for what I ate, I mean, I never really counted calories. I don't even remember a day that I actually sat down and counted calories all the way. But, you know, I eat probably the same way I do now as I always have. Uh, it may be a little less now. But, you know, I eat probably three square meals a day, not like 12 meals or eight meals or, you know, bodybuilders eat all the time. I snack a little bit. Um, but I pretty much just eat a pretty big breakfast, a pretty decent-sized lunch, and a massive dinner because that's kind of the last meal of the day. But uh, I'll snack on a couple of sleeves of Oreos here and there or, you know, a whole thing of Ritz and a block of cheese or a whole bag of Doritos, family size. I mean, just – it just really kind of depends, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I probably have gotten relatively close to ten thousand calories on a on a daily basis for most of my life. Uh, Holy shit, geez. that's huge, my friend! But it's, it's junk food. You know, yeah, as still, it's got to be. You know, now I'm a little more conscientious. At, you know, thirty years old, I'm not a young guy, but I'm not an old guy. But I definitely am more. I'm like a family, and this I'm worried about health stuff because you should be. You should start yeah. focusing on it. And so, you know, I get cholesterol checked. I'm like, okay, well, it's a little on the high side. What do I need to do? Okay, take this supplement and I can cut out this and that. Maybe I eat so many enchiladas or whatever. But I still go and eat two pounds of fajitas, you know, extra this, extra that. You're living you know, your best and, life. You're yeah. living your best life. Put it that 10,000 calories. Like, um, I swear, if I didn't, if I don't have to make a certain weight class, if it was just like, Ryan, you eat whatever the hell you want. Oh, my God. I would probably sure. smash pizza every day. Ten thousand calories would be amazing. That's yeah. like that's like the heaven for me. If I could look like you and eat ten thousand calories and somehow make it work, do you drink? Like alcohol? Yeah. Uh, not very often. Um, I mean, that's if calories I do, it's like too. maybe twice, maybe maybe three times a year. Uh, oh, really? But it's not like. Um, I've never really been a big drinker, anyways. I mean, when I did, you know, like I was in the military, travel around. I probably drank more times then and got drunk more times when I would drink than any other time, obviously, in my life. But uh, now it's more like when I, when I was swimming and now even that, you know, I've done some sports since I was pretty much, you know, 100% of the time since I was 21, I've done some sort of sport. And so my thing is, if I do this, if I go and drink or if I go eat this, is it going to affect me on tomorrow's workout? Yeah. And most of the time it would. So I was yes. like, ah, it's not worth it. And so, in the high for me was not getting drunk. It was going and swimming, or going and playing football, and trying out, or going and doing powerlifting meets, or training. And so, if I did, it was like after a competition, celebratory type thing. Uh, and I would drink to just get freaking wasted because I wanted to feel that drug. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to be, you know, you know, basically that high. And uh, I would drink a gallon of water before I go to sleep. Take uh, vitamins. And I felt great. You know, I didn't have a hangover or anything like that. I wouldn't necessarily go train the next day. Yeah. But I, I've never really been a big drinker, so the extra calories there. But I'm a soda drinker. I love soda. Oh, it's like the syrupy, the better, the sugar, the Pepsi, uh, Mountain Dews, Cokes. You know, I, it's almost like a daily occurrence now. And, really? and I know when it gets too far because I start feeling like, okay, I got way too much sugar going on. I need to back off. I'll drink, you know, a bunch of water to kind of counteract it, offset it. But, you know, there's so much sugar in our diets anyways. 
a soda, honestly, is that not that much compared to what, if you're not eating clean, I mean, you're probably getting the sugar from somewhere else. Yeah, a lot of carbs. You can, you can use it anyways. Sure. And do you, so how did you end up from swimming, uh, finding powerlifting? Because you're, so you're weightlifting, but how did you end up being like, A, how did you find powerlifting? And when did you realize, holy shit, I got a, I got a bench on me. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm strong. Well, okay, so I've got, and, and I get asked this quite a bit. So I have like a little the cheat, cheat sheet here <laughs> that has my gym lifts on it. So like when I stopped swimming in 2005, I was at a 300-pound bench. Like I said, you know, we tried out uh, at, the, at the swim team, you know, just for fun one day. So I stopped swimming shortly after that because um, just, you know, family time. You know, I was, I was driving an hour a day one way. So it was two hours of drive time plus four hours of swimming sometimes. And it was just taking a toll, not so much. I think I just realized, hey, I've got a kid now. I'm married. I'm not getting paid for this sport. I'm probably not going to make the Olympic team. What am I doing this for? You know, is it just for me? Do I really want to take this much time out of my day? Um, you know, not to sidestep, sidestep, but I started my own business when I was basically, what, 23 in order to facilitate training schedules. Like mm -hmm. I would go to a job nine to five and they were like, look dude, you can't leave early to go swim. What's wrong with you? Like, yeah. this is life. I'm like, screw you, I quit. And then I'm like, oh, I have a job for three months or whatever, trying to figure out how to pay for stuff. But it was for swimming. And so sport has always been very important. And I figured out a way to start a business and support my, my sport habit and then pay bills while I was able to train when I wanted to. But, uh, I would train so much that I'd come home at like 10 o'clock at night. Well, you know, my wife and I couldn't have dinner and when we had our first baby, you know, it was like I couldn't really spend a lot of time with it. So I felt like, man, this is getting pretty selfish. Like I, at some point I got to back off. In order to be a world-class anything, you've got to train. You can't just tinker with it for an hour a day and be done. you got to go and spend the time. And if I'm not making money at it, I, I couldn't justify it. And so I started getting like, okay, I started talking to my wife and saying, hey, what do you think about this? She's like, well, I'd like to see you more. And so I went, say no more. I'm going to figure out a way to stop swimming and just, I'll, I'll, I'll get fat, whatever, ugly, whatever. <laughs> and uh, so I, I ended up stopping probably 2008-ish or so after my last meet. And, um, and actually, it technically wasn't my last meet, but I'll get to that in a minute. So I stopped officially swimming four or five hours a day in 2008. And Six months later, I went from like 190 to like 260. Holy smokes. Because I was just eating the same stuff. We had we eat out probably twice a day. We've never been one to eat it, you know, the family to eat at home. We always go to restaurants. We eat out everything. So we don't know what we're putting in our bodies. So now your wife's like, whoa, 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 start swimming again. <laughs> she didn't say anything. She's a wonderful. She didn't say a word. I have a picture, and I still, I got to find it someday. I was going to post it up. I think I have before, but I'll post it up again. Uh, is a picture of me coming out of our, our kitchen area holding like a coffee mug and something else and one of them has me six packed out and then like this other one is me like fatty and of course I'm like I saw this in the mirror one day and I went let me see what I look like because I can't see in the mirror it doesn't it's lying to me so I said take a picture of me with this coffee mug and this right here I want to see what I look like and I put them side by side and I literally thought I was looking at an old fat man. I was like, this is disgusting. <laughs> well, that's 10,000 calories, my friend. Yeah, if you're yes. like, oh my God. Yeah, if you well, stop cold turkey 10,000 calories later. You so, know. And I didn't touch a weight. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't run. I, didn't, I just, I figured out, you know, just live a life. 
And I saw that, and I talked to her. I said, you didn't tell me I look like this. She goes, I don't care. I'm like, bull, whatever. I'm like, I, I don't want to look like this. Yeah. So I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to swimming because that's the only thing I know to do. I hate running. Um, the military ruined that for me. But uh, I'm not a real – I'm not a work. I'm, I'm lazy. I like to be lazy and just kind of sit on the couch and do nothing. And, and the longer you do it, the easier it gets to do nothing. And so I had to force myself to go and train at like the YMCA because I didn't want to join a team. And I was just like, I'm going to get back. And six months later, I had gone back down to about 190 or so. And um, I was like, all right, now I'm going to stay at this weight, but I'm going to start lifting weights. I'm going to actually get, get into the weight room so that I can have some arms on me. Because if I have a little bit of a gut, maybe not my six-pack. I had to have my six-pack. But if I don't have that, maybe I can just have a little bigger build and look like I, I'm in shape. And so I, we were uh, newly moved out to uh, out, outskirts of Houston, and we're at this apartment building. Well, downstairs, there was a guy who lived at the apartment complex, but he was like a live-in trainer, bodybuilder style. And I was always like, man, that guy down there, he's like juiced out, boy, head. man, he's a jerk. I never met the guy. I never talked to the guy, and I just assumed this about him. I'm like, this guy, he... What's he doing now? He's, he's hustling people for workouts and all this stuff. I'm like, this jerk. So one day, I think of all people, my wife says, well, first of all, uh, I think you should go talk to him and see, see what he knows. She goes, but second of all, don't ever look like that. Don't ever get that big. Don't ever look like that guy because that's just gross. So I went down, started working out with him, and he real nice guy, knowledgeable, went through kind of the basic five-by-five five stuff. He could have been nice, let's right? See, I went, <laughs> Well, so he's got a 500-pound bench, and I didn't know that Shit. was, like, really, really good. I just was like, okay, that's that's strong, whatever. I didn't know where that was in terms of powerlifting or anything. I didn't know what powerlifting was. And so when I started working out with him, I, I started kind of just doing a 5x5, five five, and I think we got up to maybe maybe 400 or so bench from a 300 within a year. So it, it grew, but I was chasing his 500. I was like, all right, that's what he does. I want to be able to do that. That's just kind of how I am. I didn't know there was an upper limit to the average person. I just figured I'm at 300. I could be at 500. Yeah, we'll see how long it takes. Yeah. And um, they were, he was training a couple other guys who had just recently graduated high school uh, that I'm still friends to uh, with to this very day. But they were trying, they were really good football stars at their high school and they were trying out for the free agent combines for NFL. So they didn't quite have the, it was Foster High School, so it wasn't really a popular high school. It wasn't like you know playing for college or playing for high school that's really well known. So to get into like the NFL scouts from that level, especially now we're playing college, was was tough as it is still. So they they found this free agent combines through combines.com, and I was like, what's this? And he was like, well, we're going out, we're going up to Dallas for the weekend. Uh, if you want to come, we're going to actually try out. For, you're going to have these guys try out for like running back and defensive or uh, running back and quarterback and see if they can't make the NFL. I'm like, that'd be cool to see. I'm like, yeah, I'll come up there. Well, sure enough, there's a spot I could pay, you know, pay a little money and try out myself. I'm like, well, how am I going to try out or whatever, man? They're like, dude, just pay the money so you can come out on the field with us. I ended up actually trying out, and I was 240 pounds at the time. So I, I had put on some muscle, and uh, I was probably, let's see, I was, I was probably about 450 or so bench because we were going back and forth with, with these other guys who had about 400 four or so bench as well. So we kind of go back and forth. He'd get a full five, I'd get a full five. Then he'd get 420, and I'd try to get 420. Uh, so they were friends of mine. 
we went up to this combine. I tried out as the, the slowest position that I could figure because I knew my 40 wasn't that fast. I was like, I'm not going to run a 4 or 5, and I'm 240. I'd have to. I'm going to try out for defensive tackle. I'm going to try out for the fat boy spot. Well, I knew my weight was way underweight, but every all my numbers were good. 225 I did for like 30 reps, that particular test. Uh, and so we were doing the combine test and all that stuff before. And the NFL scouts that were there said, look, we're going to be real honest with you. You have potential. You could, in fact, get to the National Combine and potentially make the NFL. But you got to gain some weight if you're going to be a defensive tackle. Holy what are you shit, dude. You're like, I just showed up for an <laughs> afternoon, bro. I don't pay. I'm a swimmer. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't care about this stuff. I'm like, I'm just here to have fun with my boys. And I was like, that's cool that I got this on the shuttle and this on the uh, – I have them all posted. Some of my first YouTube videos, I have, like, that particular combine – and it was not bad. I mean, it was very ugly skill. Like, my footing and my change of direction was all off. But for a defensive tackle, they were like, that's not bad. Your weight's just 60 pounds underweight, and your yeah. height is probably six, pounds, six yeah. inches less. And so they said, but if you really want to try it, if you really think you can do this, you could come back 60 pounds more next year. And I don't know if they were joking with me or, or they just thought, let's just get this kid out of here. They got my money for the trial. I think it's a business. Yeah. So they said, if you come back next year, 60 pounds, we might be able to get you to the National Combine. So I went home thinking, eh, whatever, this one, nice trial. Well, come to find out, I'm not the person to just let stuff like that go. I'm like, dude, what if I actually gained 60 pounds? Can I make the NFL? Nah, no way. I'm like 30 years old. There's no way. I'm like, ah, let's do it. Let's do it. This is like so around, I, this round when the movie with Mark Wahlberg, Invincible, comes out. And you go watch it, you're like, ah, oh, shit, now that's in my head. Here we go. Yep. I mean, yeah. and, and my wife knew it. She goes, God dang it, you're going to get into football now. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but, dude, the NFL, like, who gets a shot at this? Yeah. I actually, and they, they totally led me on, but they didn't know that I was going to do what I did. So I went back to the drawing board. I said, okay, I'm going to eat as healthy as I can, but eat more calories. And I'm going to get as, he as heavy as I can with the weight room. Just slabs of muscle. I didn't know how or what I was going to do. I just figured that's the plan. Went back and everything happened, just like I said. I started lifting like uh, four days a week. I had plenty of rest and recovery. That's all I did was just literally eat, sleep, and lift. And then my business uh, accommodated all this so I could do that. And so I'd make money during the day. I'd go train in the morning. I'd train at night. I'd do some running. I'd do some cardio drills. And I started just slapping on the weight. And I got a little fat, but a lot of it was just pure muscle. And that, about that time, let's see, I, I went up to a 500 bench. I finally hit 525. And then about that time, a year had gone by, and I went and tried out the same combine, but it was the you go to the local level, and if you get – Top two, they invite you to the national at Indianapolis Stadium. I went up there at 302 pounds, and ten of it was water weight. I'm not gonna lie, I was two ninety dollars, <laughs> and I drank a gallon of water to just get as heavy as I was so bloated. But you just weigh in, you could go throw it up. You, yeah, know, like yeah, you had to yeah. run with it, and you had to be that weight when you were actually doing the tryout. I did all my drills. They weren't perfect, but they were a hell of a lot better than the previous year. And they were like, dude, you did it. You got up here and you went 60. Like, what did you do? And I'm like, I just ate and worked out. That's all I did. And they went, well, congratulations. You're going to Indianapolis in a month to try out in front of the scouts. And I went, holy shit, are you serious? I'm like, I'm going to try out for the NFL scouts. And so my wife was all about it. You know, we had this big team, we had a big celebration. Um, and I just, you know, I planned it out. I went up to Indianapolis and tried out. 
on Lucas Oil Stadium. This was, I guess, about a year before the, the Super Bowl was there. And um, got, you know, I got to talk to agents and scouts and everything. I picked up an agent because I was like, all right, I'm going to talk to the Carolina Panthers. They seem to be interested. Um, now, long story short, it, it probably was a year and a half between that time and the time that I actually figured out, hey, this is probably not going to work out. They said, look, we love what we see. Your numbers look great. Your freaking bench, your strength is off the charts. You're a little too short, but I think we could use you as an inside linebacker in the league on some you know practice squad spot at the very least. But we need to see some game film. You don't have any experience. You played freshman year in high school and you've been a swimmer, so you haven't been injured, so that's good. You're old, but statistically speaking, we could probably use you because you haven't been beat up in a college ball and all this stuff. And so go back, play some semi-pro in your hometown or go play for a college. And at that time, I thought, well, heck, I could go – you know, enroll in college. I got military friends. I can do all whatever I want. Just go play for a Division One school. I probably wouldn't make the team, by the way, but I could try, and I could get some game film. But having a family, wife, that would have just added more to the schedule. I thought, eh, I'm just gonna go join like the semi-pro team down the street, get some game film, have somebody out there with a cell phone video, and I didn't realize that the quality of the game film and the quality of the players mattered. So even if I was playing my best, if I was making a sack based on this guy praying like trash, on film it looks horrible to the scouts because they're like, dude, of course you ran past a five-year-old. What, you know, yeah, this guy yeah, can't yeah. play. So fast forward, I sent all this film to them, and they were like, look, we're going to be real honest. You're going to have to get, you know, get on a team that's got HD cameras or something because this is garbage. Like you're playing at stadiums that don't even have lights. you got headlights shining on you. You know, you got all these announcers that aren't even announcing your name right. I can't read your jersey. I can't tell if that's your hand or it's his hand. And so I, I did join um, – Greg Cook played for um, Green Bay Packers for, oh, 15 years or 12 years in the Hall of Fame up there. Uh, he was the head coach of one of the minor pro teams that I could actually get paid a paycheck to play for here in Houston. And uh, he had some guys that played in the NFL that he knew that he was like, look, I'll, I'll help you out. You know, come join my team. And there was a lot better game film. So I was able to do that for a while. But – Long story short, sent it to the scouts. The scouts were like, dude, we don't even know who you are. I'm like, dude, I, I talked to you guys last week. They're like, we're the new guys. Like, we just took this position. Those guys moved on to other teams. Who are you? And I'm like, well, here's my story. And here's it. They're like, dude, you're old. We don't need you. I'm like, rough, rough. I get yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I talked to Greg Cook, who was my contact. And he really believed in me. He's like, look, I'm going to be real honest with you. Statistically speaking, you're 30, 31 years old. You're never going to make – it's not that you can't play. It's the, it's a business. NFL is not looking for guys who just want to play. you got to have some serious skills. And you either come from a college and you got some sort of awards or some sort of staff that, that can follow you with game film and publicity and everything else, not just some random show up, you know, that showed up for tryouts who's 40 years old or 30 years old and says he can play. Uh, so with all that said, I, he said, you got a choice to make. You can keep trying out. He goes, but you're probably just going to be a 40 year old trying out for a sport that you're never really going to make. You might have fun playing. I love playing. I loved hitting heads. It was, it was a, a rush, but I also had to think I need to do something that's going to get me further in life. And I, that just seemed to be a dead end. I had no idea what was next. Uh, so I said, well, all right, I get it. I'll bow out gracefully. It's not quitting. It's just, I couldn't go any further. I just yeah. couldn't take it. Um, I'm going to put my eggs into being a dad and running my business a lot more successfully and got out of powerlifting or not got out of uh, football probably just before 
I went into the gym one day and did a 605 bench. Um, and I was just angry at some of the stuff, you know, just went into the gym one day and figured, you know, I'm going to break the 600 barrier. Um, didn't have any clue that it was world class. And it was touch and go. It was, you know, it was Instagram type lift before Instagram was Instagram. Um, and I had a buddy of mine who's still a training partner to this day who's got a 2132 total and almost a 600-pound bench, Jeffrey Yonker. Um, he went with me one day when our trainer, his sister, actually died tragically in an accident. He had to fly up north uh, or St. Louis. Um, and so I said, hey, it's Christmas Eve 2012. Let's go get our workout in. You know, that way you know, we had Christmas off. And I'm like, let's go see if I can try to do 605 today. And that's the lift that is on Instagram. All right, this is on uh, YouTube. And it, it, it broke the internet. Like for me at the time, you know, 100,000 views or whatever. Yeah. And people were like, dude, are you serious? Like, that's crazy. Like, th you're not human. That's fake. Uh, all the comments, all the stuff. Oh, man, you're on everything under the sun. You're taking all sorts of I'm like, I swear to God, I don't know what any of that stuff is. Like, I've never touched anything. I don't know what a powerlifting meet is. I don't know what a pause bench press is. I don't, all this stuff. And so somebody sent me like a personal message. Um, and you can see all the comments still there from way back in the day saying, look, bro, I think you're really strong. You probably wouldn't do 600, but you could do a solid 540, 550 if you try it in a, in a powerlifting meet. And I'm like, people keep saying powerlifting meet. What the hell is a powerlifting Isn't that those fat guys who just walk around and lift weights because they can't do any other sport? Like I was totally, I had no clue what powerlifting was. And, uh, and to me, it was just like, you know, the stereotype, you know, I saw the big guy down the gym who's big, muscular, no neck. I'm like, oh, he's on everything on the world. I, he's, I, I would never like him. He's not a nice guy. Ends up being one of the nicest guys in the world. Mm -hmm. Same thing with powerlifting. I judged it as these are these 450-pound guys that just lift weights. That's all they do. Um, so I started kind of thinking about it but not really pursuing it. Something happened, and the team that I was training with, uh, Texas Strength is what uh, Texas Strength um, Systems is what he was calling his gym. The, the Derek Jarman, the guy who I first trained with, the 500 pound venture, and Jeff Yonker, who was also training there, is now my, still my training partner to this day. Um, Roland, who tried out for football, this, we were all training under this this guy. He goes, "Hey, what do y'all think about joining a powerlifting team?" And I was just like, "Dude, that's weird." Like I've actually kind of thought about that, but I'm like, I don't know anything about it. He goes, "Dude." I got it all down. APF, they got a meet going on uh, later in this year, December, whatever. And uh, I was like kind of swimming at the time. So it kind of bounced around. I had left training with them for a while to get to, I was like 605. Okay, I'm a 605 pound venture. What's next? Like, do I want to go for 615? I kind of lost the mojo. I was like, who cares? Like, that's good enough for me. What am I going to do? Go 700? Because I think when I was Googling world records at the time, kind of paying attention, I was like, that's so far-fetched. I'm like, that's for those guys who do that for a living. That's that's great. There's probably 100 people between me and them or 1,000 people. And uh, just kind of let it go. I just was like, you know, I'm not going to be that guy, whatever. I don't know anything about it. But so I went back, and I actually started swimming a little bit to, to lose some weight because I was like, what am I going to do with all this extra muscle? I can't play football. I've got a 600 bench, big deal. What I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And um, I went down to about 239 in weight. Did a swim beat, and this was in 2014, 2014 when this happened. And uh, somebody posted up, hey, we're going to actually join this. We're actually going to uh, start a powerlifting team. Who wants to be in on it? The meet's going to be October in 2014. I went, 
I'll be there. And of course, they were like, dude, we haven't seen you in like three months. Do you, do you even still live, bro? Like, I bet you couldn't even do 500 right now. And I'm like, all right. I said, that's that's all right. I'll see how y'all want to be. I was like, put me down. I'll be there. So I, you know, I said that I was going to the event, and I got a lot of hate from it. But I ended up coming back in for the summer and training for this October meet. Well, like. Um, October didn't happen because I guess the guy had died. Like it's the the meat that actually was ended up being named after this guy. He died like right before the meat, and so they said, "Oh, we got to pause it. It's just out of respect." And so yeah. they re, they uh, uh, rescheduled it for December, December fourteenth, two thousand or December uh, somewhere beginning of December two thousand fourteen. And so I was like, "Sweet, I got an extra couple months to train. I'll be ready." So I was training full power, but my bench was obviously where I was where I was going with it. So I went with, um, I think, I was training in the 400s or so with squat, five or so in deadlift, and of course I was getting back up to the 500s for, for bench. And the meet comes around, and I'm like, all right, I don't know anything about this, attempt selections. And so we're all, you know, everybody's Googling stuff. We're all trying to figure out the rules. We're like, okay, so we have to uh, do a start command and we have to pause it on our chest and uh, remain motionless. And then we got to rack, you know, and they tell us to, and uh, we got to wear a singlet. So we had to buy singlets and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is, I don't want to be this serious. I just want to show up in the lift. So I show up and I took a pre-workout scoop <laughs> for every single lift. Every oh, attempt, I was one of three workouts. Good God! <laughs> I didn't know it was uh, when when jacked, uh, Jack three D, oh, yeah. uh, when that was. So I was like, I was already a, a tolerance for like four scoops a day. I'd have to like cycle myself off of this stuff because of caffeine. I was just like, take one scoop one week, two scoops next, three, four, and I'd take like a what I would I call a deload now, where I just didn't take any of that following week and then got back on one scoop, two scoop, three scoops. So at the meet, taking nine scoops, I didn't really realize what it was going to do to me. But <laughs> I, uh, so I did all my squats. Of course, my back, I had horrible form. I didn't know what to do. I just figured my, it was back pump. I just didn't understand it. I just would go and do a lift, and I'd be like, oh, my back's killing me. I can't go that much heavier. I, yeah, I didn't know how to push through it. I didn't, I didn't know how to see what it was. So I only ended up with like a 314 bench or something, or a squat at that beat. Bench 474, which was way under what I was planning. I was planning on taking 585 as the national record in that particular federation. Um, the so I, I, I opened up with 474, nailed it, um, and then I went to five. I think 523. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, jumping that high at that level, first meet, and bombed bombed out on my bench. Obviously, you know I got my. my my first attempt, but the second and third attempts didn't happen. So I tried, you know, 523 again on the third, didn't get it. So I was like, well, 474, it's a state record. That's kind of cool, but it wasn't what I wanted. So in my mind, I'm thinking I failed. So I went on the deadlifts and I pulled like 360 or something and totaled, uh, I guess it was 1,100-ish and didn't win anything, you know, on the bench. I won, I was in every single division. So I won like four trophies, but I didn't win anything that was like overall or best lifter or any junk like that. But I told myself, okay, I want that uh, that national record, which was Wayne Van Dornstrand is the guy who held its APF record. And I didn't realize federations at the time either. I, didn't, I thought there was just one federation. I didn't even know that there was 50 of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I just kept chasing this national record. And I said, okay, I'm going to take six months off and train for the Raw Nationals in its, uh, June of 2015. 
and I'm going to break this freaking record. I'm going to, because I know I can do 600. I just need to get back to it. And so I worked my way up, you know, throughout the, 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 um, the spring and then went to my second meet alone. I just flew up there alone and, to get, and went to Grand Rapids, Michigan from Houston and uh, went on like a th- I went four days ahead or something. I had a bench only meet on Friday night. And then came back Saturday and did the full meet. Oh, dang. What numbers did you put so, up this time? So, bench only, I, I opened it like 490, ended up with 551 as a fourth attempt. So, my third attempt was like 523, but I was able to take a fourth, did 551, and everybody there was just like, oh, my God. Like, do you realize what you just did? I'm like, 550 bits. That's cool, right? They were like, dude, like that's world class. Not like, are you sick? What, what do you mean? You don't know. You're on everything, aren't you? I'm like, on what? what are you doing? I had a guy pull me to the side. He was like, dude, what are you taking? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like pre workout? I, I, I take Jack and sell your core. And he's like, no, dude, like uh, test. And I'm like, no, bro, I don't take anything. He goes, whatever, man. Tell me. I'm like, dude, I swear to God, I don't take anything. What are you talking about? He goes, why didn't you enter the, the testing division? I'm like, What's the test of division? Like I have, I have so ignorant, no clue. So fast forward, the next day I go in. Of course, I went back to the hotel and I iced my chest for like 30, 45 minutes just to kind of bring everything down. Went to eight, went to sleep, woke up the next morning. I was sore, but I was like, I think I can do chest today. So I did squat, token squat, because I wanted the record in full beat and then bench only. And uh, so I token squat. I did like 225 squat. It was ridiculously easy. But because at the time, I think my squat had gone up considerably, but I wasn't trying to waste energy. Then I did uh, the same kind of attempts, but instead of on the fourth going just to 551, I took, uh, I went 556 and nailed it. And of course, everybody, because a new crowd there the next day, some of the guys from the night before, they went berserk. And of course, there was a guy there who went like 650, Mike Wolf. And he was the star of the show, but because I was so small doing what I was doing, I was like 270, they were like, dude, you went 551 yesterday and then 556 today. What are you, human? Like, they, they, I was a phenom. And so it was kind of like, wow, this is cool. Like, I'm getting some recognition for being, you know, something that I never knew I was. And so like, dude, no, you're a powerlifter. I'm like, I'm not a powerlifter. I'm just a bench presser. I just, I just do this for fun, whatever. So all along, and I was still disappointed because I wanted 600, but I had no idea, like, attempt selections. I didn't know all the stuff that I know now. And so I did a meet, like, three weeks later in Houston. And then when I opened it 573. Whoa. So I opened it 573, nailed it, and then jumped straight to six and just got stapled. And it was over. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not taking another attempt. I'm done. And then uh, let's see, about three... Let's see, 555, so 11, 20. So I did a five, or no, this is Jim. Um, less than three months later, I did 585. So I was creeping up, and like I, I kept training with 600, but I, the pausing and the, um, of the discipline of being under the meat circumstances is what was getting me. And so I flew out to Atlanta and did a 585, and I almost bombed out. So I flew out there, didn't weigh in until the night, the, 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 the next morning, because I didn't get in. Flight didn't get there in time. Uh, and so th- this is still 2015. So later that year, I still, so one year I did like one, two, three, four, five meets. Wow. <laughs> and I kept trying to inch up the bench. I kept trying to go, you know, this much more. And, I, and the goal was always 600. I just, it, was, it had to go down. And so I was like, all right, I'll chip away at a little bit here and there. 
And so I opened it uh, at like 550 or somewhere in that range and didn't get the opener because of an uneven lockout. And I'm learning the whole time. Like, I was like, what the heck is an uneven lockout? Like, so I had to go and kind of look at the film you know, between attempts and realize what I did wrong. And so I was like, well, go ahead and put 585 on the bar because that's my second attempt anyways. And they were like, um, dude, you just – you didn't get the first attempt, 30 pounds less, but you're going to go up to 55 <laughs> to the crowd. Bench, the crowd was like, they were like, you're going to freaking bomb out. And, and then nobody said anything at the meet uh, until after the fact, like awards. But I went and put 585 on the bar and didn't get it. I could, I got it about halfway up. My lockout was the issue. And I was a wider grip venture at the time. So I got out the chest, but I couldn't get it past lockout. And I just held it there and then it started to come down. They grabbed it and it was red lighted. So now I'm two lights red, two, two lifts red lighted, bitch only me. I flew out all the way to Atlanta, spent hundreds of dollars on hotels and everything. And so I went, all right, six hundred is not gonna happen. I get it. So we'll go five eighty five on a third. We'll just see if we can get this. And I nailed it, but it was a slow, slow lift. Um, uh, uh, who's the the main guy that does all the um, the announcing? The pirate guy. Gino. Gino. Yes. So he was the best, first time I ever met him. He was announcing for this meet, and he was like, "Dude, y'all gotta get this guy, you know, some credit. He's got 585 more. Let's go! It's his third attempt." And he was hyping the crowd up, and I was like, "This guy looks really weird, but he's really cool." Yeah. yeah. So he he helped that lift quite a bit because he got me into a different mindset instead of okay, I have a struggle to get this. Let me just freaking do this, and I got it. And he just lit up the crowd and everything. Of course, I'm like, "Dude, can I take a fourth? They were like, "If you want." I'm like. Put 603 on there. The 601 is like the record at the time for that federation, like the world record. And I could have done it because it was a world, it was a world record bench only for APF. And um, um, ah, name is the guy who runs the the. Uh, it actually it was a USPA meet, so it was it was a different federation. Um, he uh, he's the the, the chair of uh, Georgia. I'm trying to remember his name. Ah, it'll come to me, but. Um, Put 603 on there, and he's like, if he gets this, he will literally be, like, the top bench presser in the world for his weight class currently. And I'm like, dude, that's so cool, man. Like, are you kidding? This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been training for. This is the YouTube video coming to life. Yeah. And so I got it about halfway up, and it just it didn't go anywhere. I was like, god dang it. This is not going anywhere. So I failed that lift, but I had felt 600 pounds in a meet for the first time. And so it took me – I guess what? Let's see. Almost a year and a half to break it, because I went back and ch it changed my grip. I changed how I trained. I changed how I set up. I changed everything that I could possibly change up just to start from scratch. Um, so it took me. Let's say I broke 600 officially in a, uh, a year later from that meet in 11 of 2016, um, and then it went from like. It went, I went 6-12 at USPA Nationals, and then a month later, because I, I, uh, I went full meet at USPA Nationals in 2016, so I, I squatted 600, 601, I benched 6-12 on four, so officially I had like a 606, I think, on the, in the full meet, and then I went uh, a deadlift, I was planning on deadlifting 700. On deadlift warm-ups, on 585 of all freaking things, I did something, and I don't even know what muscle it is, but something underneath my belt on, like, the lower lat, you know, really, really high, like, some weird area, and I bruised it. I was bruised after the meet, but I could not pull the deadlift. Like, I tore something, and 
my opener was set at 6.30. I was already within five minutes or whatever at the time. So I went out there on the opener. I had to open at 6.20 as a minimum. And I couldn't even get 5.85 on the floor in the warm-up room. So I ended up bombing out of the beat because I couldn't even pull an opener. At, what that, at the time, it was a pretty light deadlift. So yeah. I lost my official 600 bench. That That's I right. Just got yeah, because the record won't stand. Damn. Yep. And, and, I, and I actually posted it up. And I made a little, like, uh, a miniature wooden bench press rack with 600 pounds that actually, you know, as an award to myself. When I break this, I'm going to give it to myself. And I did it. I said, I did it. Even though it doesn't really count, I freaking did it on the platform. It counted for me. I'm going to post it up as such. I put my medal up there because I got a medal for something. Um, and, and somebody goes, wait a minute. Did you did you get the lift? I'm like, well, officially, no. They disqualified me. He goes, well, you didn't get it then. You should. And it was one of my teammates, and he busted my child support. So I, I get it, and I, I appreciate it. He goes, dude, you didn't get the lift. Like, you got the lift, but it's not official. Like, so you're not a 600-pound bencher. And I went, mm, it, it irked me so much that literally I went back to training, and I thought that I couldn't train bench for a while. I went back, like, the next week. I was training under Josh Bryant at the time, still am. And uh, he said, just do what you want for the next week. Just kind of relax. And I was like, I'm going to go to the gym, and I'm going to see what I have. So I unracked 225, did it for a few reps. Then I tried to unrack 315, and I couldn't because like, my back was just locked up, and I, it was obviously affecting my bench. So I walked out of the gym. Next week I walked in. I was able to unrack 315, did a few reps. Then I went to 405, and I was like, ooh, this feels good. Five, six. And then I was like, holy crap. And I put 615 on the bar, and I doubled it. Like, Two weeks after this beat. So I was like, okay, something's up. And I told him, I, and it was touch and go. And I, I sent him a message. I, I sent Josh a message. I said, hey, this is what I just did. And he goes, dude, we need to get a beat. Like now, what's, what's wrong with you? Let's get in another beat. And the next week, I doubled 630. Ooh. So I'm like, what just freaking happened? Like, did I not peak for this, this meet? Did I, did I have a lot? Because the 612 was actually fairly easy for what I thought it would be because it was sandwiched between a, a squat and a deadlift. I, you know, I didn't know energy-wise how much it was taken out of me. So less than a month later, I did 633 in a full meet, of all things, where I was able to pull 600, even after this, this injury, mm. squat 600, and then in the middle of it all, did 633. And that's, what, that's the lift that really put me on the map worldwide because people were just like, dude, you went from not being a 600-pound bencher saying you're going to break 600 to then slingshotting literally into the 630s where nobody is sitting at hardly, and now you've got more in the tank. And so I was like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Is that good? It's <laughs> so, really good. Is that, is yeah. good? But it, it, it's still – now it's it's definitely to the point now where I know the names and I've seen the, the results and I've seen the records and I know enough about the sport and, and, and strength sports in general to know – like, I'm not ignorant to where I'm at. Like, I know where I'm at now. And I know that it's, it's not a, a, a normal thing to be this way, but it still doesn't scare me to go to the next level. Like, it used to th I used to think, okay, going to 600, oh, I don't know about that. But then when it happened, that mental block doesn't happen anymore for lifts for me. It's really weird. I thought it would happen on, like, a 700 deadlift or, like, 700 squat, um, that, that 100 number being a mental block. And I, because I went through it with the 600, I swore that I'd never let it happen again. Um, so I knew that, obviously, 650 is the next number. Ed Cohen actually sent me a message after that 630. He goes, well, congratulations on the 633. Now stop messing around and go 650. 
And I went, okay, touche, let's do it. And that was my next goal. And of course, I hit it, you know, what, um, 2017, yeah, 2000, a year later. Well, not even a year, seven, seven months later, I went 661 at 260 body weight. So I was 30 pounds less body weight, but went uh, almost 31 pounds more. Wow. And so that's where I started realizing that this could be something really, really different. And then you're right in the mix now, chasing that set the road to 700, right? Is that hashtag? And um, but you're you're are you how heavy is Jeremy Hoonster? Are you the sh uh, smallest shooting for 700? No, Jeremy. Um, now I don't know what what his status is right now. I know it at, at some point in time. He, I think he is on the road to 700 now. He was, he dropped a weight class. He went way down to like 220 to try to take the all. And I think he did take the all time record for like a day for 600. Um, but he is technically the smallest guy who's ever attempted 700 raw. And as far as being on the current road to 700, he's definitely the lightest. I don't know how much he weighs right now, but he typically weighs in less than I do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 290 right now, so I know he's less than that. He's probably 250, 60 ish. Um, but, you know, to say, to say all that, it's like, I think the lightest person ever to attempt 702 has been beat. Because I know he's attempted 700, but when I attempted 702 last February, I was 290, and I don't think anybody's ever, raw anyways, attempted that. Uh, not that it makes any less, you know, I'm not trying to make that a special thing. I just, it's kind of cool to think about the statistics of things, you know, how many yeah. people on the planet have ever attempted 700? Yeah. How many people with this weight class? How many people with this, you know, those are kind of cool stats to just throw out there. And, and how far do you think, like, what, when do you think you're going to take another stab at it? Uh, well, I'm obviously going the smart approach. Um, I'm thinking around February, probably early February is the next meet. Or is it probably the soonest meet that I would attempt it. Um, I'm taking the exact same approach as I did last year, uh, 2017. I went to, well, I went to the, the APA meet in the 661, then went to Boston Bosses because Dan Green was like, hey, I need you to come out, you know, come out to Boston Bosses. I was like, that's sweet. It's always been a goal of mine to go out there. But it was kind of a, the leftovers from the previous meet. I was... I didn't know really about the peaking, and then, you know, I was tired mm. from doing the meet uh, in uh, in June, and so when August rolled around, I wasn't, I was training, but I was like, I think I may have hit 650 in the gym, and I was like, all right, I can, I can hit 700 at Boston Bosses, not really thinking, I was just a far-fetched dream, I opened at 633, that was the end of it, 650 stapled me to the bench, and I, you know, three months earlier, just nailed 661. Uh, so I felt bad for going out there as kind of leftovers. I said, look, I promise you next year I'll train for it. You know, maybe even do full power. I don't know. Uh, and I felt bad for it, but I went back to the drawing board after Boston Boston last year and said, okay, I'm going to train for 700 pounds. We're going to freaking kill 700. We're going to strip everything down like we always do. Go back to hypertrophy work. We're going to strip down the weight, put some new mass on if we can, and uh, you know, clean up the diet, just clean up the stress of the life, you know, everything. And was like a 20 week, 22 week or so stretch between boss of bosses and February 18th or so, or somewhere in that range of this previous year or 2018. And so the whole time I'm literally training bench only and I'm doing squats and deadlifts just to keep the legs in the mix and not be bored with those days. But that whole training cycle peaked me almost perfectly for a 700 bench that day. I think maybe a week, 
too early, maybe two weeks too early, or it could have been perfectly peaked for like a 695 bench on that particular day. But given the option to go back, I would not change it. Like 672 was my second attempt after a 620 opener, and I went 700, or do we go to like 680? And Josh was like, dude, conserve energy. We're talking about 700 pounds here. You know, go for go for go for broke. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. So we put 702 because Scott Mendelson is 701 at 308.5 is his weight. I'm going after it at 292, I think. With I was fully clothed, had eaten breakfast, had shoes on. I didn't care about the weight. I was like, whatever. I'm still under 300. I can. I'll go. I'm not going to doing this for Wilkes. And uh, went 672, nailed it. Put 702 on there and got it right to about four inches below lockout. And my my back actually lost tightness. So I just didn't fire off correctly, and it just it collapsed on me. And I held it there for probably a good three seconds before the spotter oh, grabbed it. Yeah. And, uh, and which I didn't care. I'll, I'll hold on to it all day long. I mean, I'm like, I'll oh, grab it, grab it, because my triceps can hold that. But it, it did waste some energy. Went for a fourth, didn't even get halfway up. Uh, and that was the end of the day. But I still walked away with a 672 bench. And um, I thought about it. I was like, well, should I have gone 690? Because I'm pretty sure the strength was there. 702 was, was a stretch. Uh, maybe if I had fired off correctly, you know, 100%, stayed in the groove, I probably would have inched it out, but who knows. Um, so with all that said, I said, after uh, that meet, I went, well, let me just mess around with some, some squat deadlift for a while just to, just to kind of get away from bench only, clear my mind a little bit, and uh, see if I can get squat deadlift numbers up. Because after the animal cages last year, I went to the just to a you know just a random gym that we were doing like the uh, the animal cage uh, animal barbell event and I pulled 605 double overhand you know no no straps no chalk or anything after benching in the cage you know 630 or whatever and somebody goes Pete Rubish was like dude I don't even do double overhand you know with 600 pounds like that's crazy you got crazy grip strength you could pull 800 if you wanted to and I thought. You should have said that, man, because now I'm going to freaking be chasing some crazy – like, I'm scared of 800-pound deadlift. I was scared of a 700-pound deadlift, but I went back two weeks later and pulled 700 in some commercial gym on crappy plates, and I'm like, dude, I'm not even peaked for deadlifts. I haven't deadlifted in a while. And in fact, in the training cycle before, I hurt my – you know, I pulled something in a belt, and we shut down deadlifts before the 672 meet because we didn't want deadlifts and my, my upper body to be messed up. So I hadn't pulled heavy in like three or four months, and I just go and pull 700. So Josh is like, let's start thinking about a meet maybe in the summertime. We'll train squats, deadlifts, and we'll put bench on the back burner and see what we can do. So training for, you know, this June meet, I was planning, I was like, 2100, let's go 777. Kind of ignorant statement, but I didn't know any better. I was like, five. If, I, if I'm chasing 700 on bench, might as well chase 700 on squat deadlift. And I'm, I already got my deadlift number. I just got to get my squat up there. And uh, I doubled like 650 three or four weeks later with squats. So I'm like, we're on track. Like I can actually build on this. We'll strip everything down. And uh, I ended up at the time, my best was like 1800 in a full meet, maybe, maybe right at 1900. So the road to 1800, like got skipped over because I just blasted through it and went, oh, I'm going to go road to 1900. And then the road to 1900 never happened because it went straight to like 2080 or something. Uh, but I was disappointed every time because I was going for a higher number. I was kind of overshooting. And so the 2100, Road to 2100 was what I had from February of this year until uh, June of this year. And when I didn't get it and I came up short like 150 pounds, people were just hating on me. They were like, oh, dude, stay to bench. What's wrong with you, man? You'll never be a lead power lifter. You'll, you'll never go 2100. What's wrong with you? 
and I took that as fuel because I was like, I know I can do this. And so since I told Dan Green, I'm going to bring my best game for this meet, I said, perfect. I, I will get back to the drawing board, fix a couple things, go low bar squat instead of high bar, and I'll go 2100 at Boston Boston. And sure enough, it freaking happened. And so and from that point, I was excited about it. It had to happen just because it, it kind of solidified me as an actual powerlifter, not just a bench presser. And then I thought, okay, next meet is going to be 700 pounds. There's no doubt in my mind because 2100 was so much harder than benching 672 for me just because it's so much harder to do all three lifts. Um, and I went back to Josh and said, okay, let's – Let's plan, you know, uh, 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 there's no date in mind for the meet, but we're going to break everything down just like we did in 2017 after Boston Bosses. We're going to do the exact same stuff, literally the exact same training, just maybe a little bit heavier or lighter because my bench wasn't quite as heavy coming off of this Boston Bosses as it was last. And so literally, what, we're in week 14 now. The last 14 weeks have been an exact mirror image, almost to the T, of last year's training to 700. So we're going to tweak everything as we go forward but we're already ahead of schedule by like three weeks where what I'm doing now is three weeks ahead of schedule than what I was doing last year. And it feels so much better. So if I can help it, I would love to do it something local. So it's just the same circumstances as last year. I feel comfortable with the meat. I know what to do. Uh, it's not a strange circumstance. You know, I'm not having to travel or anything crazy. Uh, I'm thinking it's going to be the IPA, uh, no excuses meet that they had in Houston on Fe in February. But of course, I'm always open to, well, what if I hurt myself between now and then? We'll push the meat back. So it's not like it has to be on that date. And yeah. if I, I'm not going to push myself just to make the meat date cut off. Because this kind of, it's a different type of training, I think, because most people pick a date and they train for that meat. I'm less, more or less going, let me just train until I'm ready to put 600 for reps. And that tells me I'm probably about eight, eight weeks out. That's typically how it works for me. And I'm well, tomorrow I've got 570 for three, so we're inching up on that 600 for three. Yeah, yeah. So, so is it, who else is gunning for, will you be the next 700 pound attempt? There's anyone else between here and then that's gunning? Because there's a few no. of you, there was Julius and he got it. Yep. Julius got 705 officially on the date of the, yeah, same date that I went 672. He went 705, attempted 723 and didn't get it. Uh, and I was like, dude, you would have had 716 on that and you've done it. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, I did the same thing. I had 690 and I went 702 and yeah. missed it. So it is what it is. It is what uh, it is. And you can't really say that, you know, online so much. You know, as a lifter, you know, you know, as a lifter, you know when you had certain weight and you just, you went above it. But you can't post up and say, well, I had this, but I would have. People are like, dude, you didn't have it. So yeah. you just say what you got. This is what I got. That's all I can yeah. claim. Uh, but you know going forward that you felt it, you attempted it, you were very, very close, it makes that next time not that bad. I mean, the nervous, the nerves aren't there as much because you're like, I've already kind of felt it. I know what I've missed on, and I know what to fix. It's the unknown, I think, that scares a lot of people. But uh, yeah. so Julius it? just went 716, or yeah, 716, uh, and, and killed it. Um, so I think he's out for a while because he's back to just cleaning up everything and training and, and working on the weaknesses. I don't think Hornstrom might be. I'm trying to. I, I see so many things going on. I know he just had the meet and he did the all time record with 672, I want to say. But I don't. I mean, this is no, no dig on any other lifter, but you can kind of tell when somebody's in, like when they're ready, what 672 looks like 
for when you're preparing for 700 is not the way that looked. And that's yeah. not a dig against him. It's just I don't think he's at that point in his training. I'm not. Like, you won't see me put up 672 tomorrow. So it's not a dig against anybody. But I think the next legitimate attempt will be mine. I, I, I really think so. And, and I hope that I can truly make that up. And I'm, I'm superstitious, but I'm also like, you know, I know that there's smarts that come into training, and I don't want to be assuming, well, I'm just going to go try 700. It's not an easy feat. It's not just something I take lightly. But if everything happens the same way it did last year, there's no reason it shouldn't be me up against 700 plus. 705 is actually the goal. Uh, February 9th is that is more, insane. We're thinking about. How many people so, in history have hit 700? Do you know? Five. five. So we got uh, Kirill, Kirill, Julius, Scott, Middleson, uh, Eric Spoto, James Henderson, Julius Maddox, six. Wow, that's quite a that's that's, so, that's quite the uh, yeah that's that's the a tight little group, my yes. friend. The exclusive group, yeah. And maybe James Strickland. You know, it, it's really kind of it's weird because the other night I was just kind of thinking about that because I never assume anything. In fact, I I appreciate celebrating the lift for that short amount of time after that actually happens. Because as soon as you know, as soon as you get it, you're like, well, it's just a number. I can improve it. What do I need to do to get higher? So it's a very short celebratory period. Yeah. But you know, I'll sit back and kind of just you know, when I'm in the weight room, I'm not thinking about, oh, I need to do this. I'm thinking about today and today only. But as soon as that happens, I'm getting excited because I mean, next week this is on the, and then that's on the agenda. So it's just building off one number after another. But uh, when I think about 700, it's not. Um, it's not scary, but it's like, wow, if I do that, I will be the lightest person to actually do it. Oh, it's history. And that might stick for a long time. That, you know that would I mean? be the biggest Wilkes bench of all time. I mean, I pound for so. pound, so. would it be? I, th- I think it would have to be, I would think. Maybe Kirill's because this is – but he's a massive man. Well, no, no, Kirill's uh, actually got a lower Wilkes than I do. He's oh. got um, – yeah, it's a oh. – um, not that I mean I'm not really a big Wilkes guy just because it well for us big guys it's not, we we're worried about the number uh, yeah I think there's a certain curve in there where it's appropriate to say okay this person this person Wilkes but like me versus Julius me versus Kirill the numbers are, that's where we're going for like we're not gonna be like oh hey man I got a one eighty five Wilkes you got one eighty four point two I'm like dude you got a seven thirty eight freaking bitch. You got a 738 bench. You know, that is what it is. But when you get a 700, you know how you're into chasing these numbers. It's just like after you hit 600, it was 700, etc. But when you hit seven, is there ever going to be a point where you hit in the 700s and you're like, is there something more? Or are you going to be like, you know what? You know, you, do you picture yourself getting to a point where like, I think I've said everything that's got to be said? You know, I, or, or can I, you keep well, pushing? I, I'm sure there will be. Because honestly, I really don't care about the full powerlifting numbers anymore. Like 2100, I'm, I'm okay with never lifting in a powerlifting meet and chasing anything higher than 2100. I'm, I'm content with that. Now, do I think I could squat 800? I think if I really put it, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, I'm bigger than most guys that do, and they're smaller guys, and I think my technique and, and things like that could carry me to that. But then, to me, it's like, okay, so I got an 800 squat. Let's say I do a seven. Hundred bench in a full meet, and I got an eight hundred deadlift. I mean, do I do I care that much about putting up what is that 20, uh, 16, 2300 total? I mean, yeah, that's a freaking amazing number. That's not something I want to take lightly or say, oh, I could just do that if I wanted to, because 
there's a lot, obviously a lot of training, a lot of things that would go into that, and I may never hit it. So not to take anything away from the guys who nailed that number, but to me, 2100 in my own mind is I'm okay with that. I'd rather yeah. chase something that nobody really chases. I mean, a lot of people, I say a lot of people more chase the 2300 number than 700 pound bit. So yeah. it's like, do I want to put all my eggs in that basket or this basket? I'd rather put them in where I, where I like. You know, I like the bench, and of course, to me, it's more rare. And when you yeah. hit that, do you think you're going to keep chasing beyond, or do you foresee, you know, when you start hitting the 700s, are you going to start like? Because after a while, it gets tough, right? To keep keep digging in, buying new goals, and buying in, and doing everything behind it that needs to be done. I I think honestly, I mean. Let's hit 700 first. Yeah. <laughs> People ask me, what about the all-time record? And that's a cool, I mean, it's not, not to take it, you know, that's, that's an understatement. It'd be wonderful to try to say, you know, I'm going to go after the, the American record, then I'm going to go after the all-time record. But the, diff, the difference between a 672 bench and a 738 bench is, is huge. Yeah. Now, that's speaking of the normal, average, elite powerlifter, the, the best of the best. Which I, you know, this is not an ego statement at all, but I don't ever fall into that category because I never limit myself to think, oh, I'm just one of the best of the best elite. I really think that there's a, a, a I'm bred just a little different. And maybe it's just a mindset. It might be ignorance, but I, it hasn't served me anything but well since, since I started, is to think, well, if Kirill did 738, I don't care how big he is, I don't care how strong he is or what his, his experience is, I can do it because I think I can. And it, mm-hmm. it's... You know, it's, it sounds like a kiddish statement, like, oh, I can own the world if I wanted to, or I could do this or do that, or would it be CEO of Microsoft, but it, it, you have to believe it at some point before you're even going to take the first step. Mm-hmm. So without getting into the cliche, kind of cheesy, you know, believe in yourself kind of comments, that's what's gotten me this far. You know, I, I wasn't the guy who was like, oh, I'm going to bid 700 one day. I was, I had a limit on myself because I didn't know any, I had a self, you know, kind of self-governor. Where when I did 600, I was like, okay, I'm done. What's what's left? So I might hit seven and go, I'm okay. I'm okay with this. I'm okay with going back. And you know, maybe it, it the training becomes a little too tough because I've got family commitments or other stuff, and it just becomes less of an importance to me. But I've told people time and time again, if I if I broke my arm tomorrow and never could bench again. I'm okay with a 672 bench. Like that's okay. It's in the record books. It's gonna be there for a while. It's gonna be top probably top 20 for the next 50 years. Maybe not. Maybe powerlifting takes a huge turn, but I'm okay with that. But I know that I've still got more in the tank, and I know that on that particular day I could have done more. And if I've still got the ability to do it and the drive, then I'm going to keep doing it and you until know, something else takes my attention. So I think that's how Vince is going to go until the day it just stops. I don't know what number that's going to be at, though. This kind of brings me to – so we have a question we ask everybody whenever we have on this podcast. And – um before we let you go, because we, we've took it a two and a half hours here to yeah. your time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, by the way. Uh, you got a really good story. But when all is said and done, and um, let's say it is 20 years ahead, uh, and, and you're looking back at your career, how do you want to be remembered? Um, I think, and this is just in life in general, and this is literally how I live my life, is I want to be able, I want people to miss me. I want there to be a, in fact, I literally, this is so weird, I heard this in church this morning, but I want there to be a void when I'm no longer here in the sport.
sport or in life or whatever. I want my kids to miss me when I'm gone. I want there to be like sadness, but enjoy at the same time because I want to be able to say that whatever my whatever I did with my life, it had contributed some way to inspire somebody to do something that maybe they didn't believe they could do or push themselves to that level uh, or maybe a, approach their training in a smarter way versus a harder way. I see a lot of, I get a lot of kids reach out and they're, they have these ideas in their head of what it should be. And I'm like, dude, where did you learn this from? And they're like, oh, I've learned it from top level lifters. I'm like, who? Like, are you serious? Like, that's bro science. Like, use your brain. And so if I can just make people change their outlook on their life in a positive way, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be powerlifting. Because honestly, to me, in this, like I said, not taking anything away from the sport of powerlifting, but it's just a sport. Like, it's just picking weights up and putting them down. Like, mm-hmm. what is so important about that? It doesn't, what I'm doing in the, in the weight room, what people see is not what they're impressed with. I mean, they see the weight go up and they see it go down. They go, oh, my God, that's impressive. But I think what, what really impresses people is your character, who you are as a person at the end of the day. Because if you're a jerk and you can lift 800 pounds, everybody's impressed with the weight. But at the end of the day, they don't want to have anything to do with you. So you're not going to be able to change their life or impact them in a positive way. You're basically just impressing them as a show horse. You know, you're just some, some form of entertainment. I've always tried to be the person that's like, look, I have skills and talents that I want to take advantage of, but if you're going to want to talk to me and, or be willing to talk to me and meet with me on an individual level, I want to know about what you do in your life and how you're being the greatest you could be because it's not about me, it's about you. And that's what I try to turn the tables on people is just, you know, if they're doing something in their life or they're, let's say they're depressed or they're, you know, they're not having a good time in their marriage or they're not a good dad, whatever their, their holdup is, is that they can control some portion of their life and that inspiration that maybe they get from the weight room or they get from my swimming or they get maybe not even from, from, from me to make themselves better. I think that's what, I mean, that's what we're here on this planet to do is, is not just lift weights, but the inspiration that comes from it. Um, so I, I would definitely want to be remembered for changing people's lives for the better. Well said, my friend. Um, if people want to reach out to you, how do they reach you? Um, well, I'm on Instagram at SwimHack. Uh, I got my website. Uh, you know, I do coaching and, and programs on there as well. But benchonly.com, I was able to snag that uh, as a web designer, which we didn't go into. But as a web designer, uh, the largest web design company in Houston, you know, I've, I've got some technical skills, hence the name Hacker. Uh, so I definitely bought that name and, and snagged that up. And I put my bio and, and contact information, stuff like that on there. But those are probably the best ways. I mean, people can email me, uh, which I put all that on the website as well. Perfect. And anybody you want to thank, sir, before we let you go? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, thank God for everything, just for the talents, just for saving grace. I mean, obviously, it could have been much worse in my younger years. Uh, but, you know, my wife, my family, my kids, uh, obviously, all my training partners throughout the years, Jeff Yonker, my my favorite, and all of Houston, all of the world would be Women's Strength, uh, one of my sponsors. Uh, Tommy Hastings, Jessica Bell, uh, Animal Team. Uh, I'm a newly sponsored animal athlete. Uh, that's a really cool elite team to be a part of. So thanks to the whole animal team. They take care of me. Um, there's so many people. <laughs> but I, would say those, those, I wouldn't say those are the most important people, but those are the people I definitely can remember at this moment, put on the spot. So if I yeah, forgot yeah. somebody, you know, obviously like my coach, Josh Bryant, he gives great programming. We work really well together. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people will, will 
well, and I'll just put this out there on record. A lot of people will, will hate on him because he works with a lot of the elite level lifters, and they'll say, "Well, you were already at 600 bench before you even met him." Yeah, but I wasn't almost at a 700 pound bench. Yeah. So there's something to that, and I may not, and I probably wouldn't push myself certain days because that's why I have a coach is to push me. Uh, and I, even me at my level, I have bad days. I just don't want to be at the gym. I just don't want to freaking be there. And knowing that I have to report to somebody, a training partner, a coach, makes me do things that I maybe normally wouldn't in a smart way. And so there's something to that. So, you know, a lot of, there's a reason why a lot of the elite level guys are using Josh Bryant, uh, not to mention just all the knowledge. But uh, Ed Cohen, he's another guy I got to thank, you know, so – I'll stop it from there because I'm going <laughs> Well, so listen, thank you very much for coming on, man. You've got a phenomenal story. Love to keep in contact, especially in February when you're going for that 700 bench. Okay. I appreciate it very much. Keep us in the loop, my friend. Good luck with training. Sounds good. Thank you. See you guys soon. You bet, buddy. See you later.